VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, the 4th of July. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Let's get the week off to Flying Start. That requires you in the queue and on the air. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, you could just hear the rain pounding on the roof of the studio here this morning. But a beautiful day for Memorial Day and Canada Day celebrations. Off to a good start in the recreational food fishery, if my social media is any indication. Big as dogs, apparently. And just one of those reminders via email. A listener said, just remember all the instances where we saw people pulling in half a cod because a shark had got it before you got to the boat. So maybe just a helpful reminder for next weekend's participation that you don't put your hand down to the surface of the water to retrieve your cod. You're hollering over the gunnel because you never know. might be a shark on the other end. And a happy 4th of July to our American friends, of which there are many living here in the province. Massive celebrations there south of the border today, of course. All right, I kept a close eye on the NHL draft to see if there was a chance where Riley Mercer might get drafted in the NHL. He was a 24th-ranked North American goaltender, and, of course, his older brother, Dawson, standout for the New Jersey Devils. He didn't get there. Now, it was a couple of years ago, or last year, pardon me, that the Montreal Canadiens invited Riley to their development camp on an amateur tryout. Got let go, but the Ottawa Senators have made him one of 36 uh, invitees to their development camp ongoing, so... Hopefully that will see some opportunity for Mr. Mercer down the line. All right, here's a great one. So people are familiar with Michael Foley's Academy of the Martial Arts. The Foley's have been at it for a long, long time, and Michael's a terrific fella. One of his coaches was participating in the U.S. Open ISKA World Martial Arts Championships very recently, and he came away with the Black Belt Championship. Amazing. At a world championships, one of our very own, I think his name is William Smith. He is the men's black belt champion for 2023. Pretty cool accomplishment there, for sure. A couple of interesting notes uh, in the world of sports. So even if you're not familiar with the New York Yankees or Major League Baseball, virtually everyone knows the name Lou Gehrig. And it was uh, 84 years ago today, in 1939, where Gehrig, of course, had big diagnosed with ALS. He took to the microphone to give one of the most iconic speeches in Major League Baseball. He became the first Major League Baseball player to have his number retired. It's really commonplace now, but his number four was retired on that day. So people think about the luckiest man on the face of the earth speech. So here's part of it. He says, I've been in ballparks for 17 years, and I've never received anything but kindness and encouragement from you fans. When you look around, wouldn't you consider it a privilege to associate with yourself with such fine-looking men as they're standing in uniform in this ballpark today? So I close in saying that I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you. And, of course, the crowd goes wild, some 61,000-plus fans there. On that day, he had a couple of records in his, uh, in his book. Career Grand Slams, the most ever, had 23 at the moment in time, that moment in time. Most consecutive games played at 2,130. That record stood for 56 years, of course, until Kyle Ripken Jr. broke it, but he died two years later after that. Now that Wimbledon is ongoing, it was on this date where every tennis fan old enough to have watched and remember would remember this one in 1981. And I was, t- I was talking to Brian Madore about this this morning. You know, now we get to see early round coverage. If you want to watch tennis, you can watch it from the qualifiers right through the finals. But back in the day, we only ever got to see the finals in the ladies and the men's, whether it be at any of the majors. And it was on this date in 1981 where John McEnroe 
ended Bjorn Borg's streak of five straight Wimbledon titles with a famous victory. Lost the first set, 6-4, went on to win a couple of tiebreaks, 7-6, 7-6, and 6-4 in the fourth to knock Borg off his five straight Wimbledons. Pretty great stuff. All right, talk about the different lots of life and the disparity and the growing gap between the rich and the poor. You know, this is not about rich envy. This is just the fact of the matter, and I don't think this gets a whole lot of attention. I don't know why that would be, because that growing gap is problematic no matter how you slice it. So we look at the first half of 2023, and there's something called the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. So the world's 500 richest people added $852 billion to their fortunes in the first half of 2023. So, I mean, we know some of the notables. You know, Musk, who's making real hash of the Twitter website, he added $96.6 billion to his net worth through the 30th of June. And then compare and contrast that to all the worries that us individuals have with the implications of the 1st of July and some additional monies we're going to have to spend for the necessities of life. So, and again, I've used this stat before, but I think it's helpful because it's hard to wrap your mind around how much $50 million is, let alone a billion dollars. Here's some of the differences as illustrated by time. A million seconds is 12 days. A billion seconds is 31 years. A trillion seconds is 31,688 years. And before I'm gone, if I last for a while, there's probably going to be a trillionaire amongst us. So adding $96.6 billion in half a year is truly remarkable stuff. And again, contrast that to what we saw coming to this province on the 1st of July. All right, you've heard the numbers, but it's worth putting it out there because something has to give. It absolutely does. And so in the annual rate hike from Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, it's the annual rate adjustment, pardon me, which happens on the 1st of July every year, electricity rates are going up between 3.4% and 6.7% for residential cu- customers, commercial users between 7 and 8.4%. Then we know the implication of the federal backstop on the carbon tax. But in the world of gas and diesel, not massive, considering there is some form of rebate coming for the 40,000 homes that are using oil to heat their home. 17 additional cents is absolutely crippling. When government makes policy announcements and incentive packages, I get a good idea just how attractive they may be for some, just based on the volume of requests for information or links, and in this case, in the old oil-to-electric incentive program. Vastly different than programs of the past where Government will put some stackable policy monies aside where people, if they choose to do so, can move off from heating their home with oil onto electricity. But this one is getting a lot of traction. I would imagine there is going to be a fair number of Canadian, or pardon me, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians going to take advantage of this $157 million. Whether it be you want to install mini splits, multi splits, central heat pumps, electric furnace, electric boilers, the key difference here, and of course there's floating targets for how much you might be eligible to receive. But this one, notably, uh, will cover the cost of upgrades to your electrical panel and or the removal of your oil tank. And people do demonstrate some savings when they move to these different types of technologies. But I have been walloped with emails saying, can you send me a link, can you send me a link, can you send me a link? In addition to how popular it would be to have monies for electrical panel upgrades or removing your oil tank, the problem for many people was the other policy, uh, the other incentive programs required you to come up with some money up front. And for people who might even be interested in making this transition or this switch, they just didn't have the cash. Now the installers can build hydro and Newfoundland power directly. It's being run by Take Charge, so that will make this super attractive, I would imagine, to many. 
But of course, if you're going to be interested in moving ahead with it, you're probably going to have to try to book an installer and do a little bit of shopping around to ensure you're getting yourself into what you think you're getting yourself into. All right. Spoke to a couple of, you know, it's one thing for me on the outside looking in to try to read between the lines and take the temperature of one industry or one sector of the economy or, or, or of society. But I spoke to a couple of folks in the oil business in the recent past, in the last few days. And, you know, they are really worried about what's going on here. Because, you know, just break it down. Out of nowhere, Equinor walks away from their massive find. BP walks away from their exploration program, which was looking at some potential of 5 billion barrels of recoverable oil. Remarkable stuff. Now, ExxonMobil is going to proceed with their uh, scheduled exploration. Coming with it, though, is $50 million of our, well, I guess, yes, of the government's money to help them consider how they're going to explore. And they've got a rig book for, I think, 150 days with the ability to extend for another 60. So that's a good one. And it's hard to get into the private sector and the private companies and really glean a whole lot about their motivations and why they do one thing or another. But on this front, regarding the Terra Nova FPSO, Suncor really does owe us some answers, I think, because we've got some serious skin in the game. You know, we put the 230-odd million dollars cash on the barrelhead. Then there was some $300 million of deferred royalties. So we are in. You know, on top of some of the equity stake we have in some of these plays, which doesn't really give us a whole lot of say, the folks in the oil industry will tell you that the operator is really ruling the roost. But on this one, with all the trepidation and concerns inside the industry, whether it be for the companies and, most importantly, workers in that industry, is knowing what's going on would be extremely helpful, but we can't get anything out of Suncor other than they backed out production from that oil field for the entirety of this year. Anyway, I want to take it on. And it looks like might be this week. There's a chance that we're going to hear some news this week about province giving the green light for certain companies to move to the next phase in their wind, hydrogen, ammonia plays. I know you hear a lot about it, but I don't know if it gets a whole lot of traction beyond the folks who are simply opposed to it, whether it be environmental issues or the, the numbers of turbines, the size of the turbines, you know, all the deal. But we're, I think when it starts to come to pass, we're going to see more and more people have better understanding, including me. I look to other countries that are doing something very similar. There was a new story inside of Bloomberg over the weekend regarding Spain and how they're moving very, very quickly to try to become the quote-unquote Saudi Arabia of green energy inside this wind, hydrogen, ammonia. But of course, their geographical issue allows them to simply build things like pipelines. So when people say getting in on the ground floor, being part of the infancy of this industry to absolutely secure markets, they're probably not wrong. And the business model is not really my concern if you're World Energy, GH2, or the group out in exploits, or Pattern Energy, or what have you, which is a bit of a different kettle of fish because they don't need crown land for their first phase. But I think we're going to hear some about it this week. You know, again, you're talking about the issues that are really frustrating Canadians. We all know where the issues are and where the crises lie with food and otherwise. But housing is one as well. So... You know, back in 1986, the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation began adopting the so-called 30% rule. So 30% of your income before taxes to uh, afford your housing needs. It's just not actually even mathematically possible. Certainly some of the overheated real estate markets, for instance, in Vancouver, you'd need a salary of $9,000 a month or $108,000 a year for an average one-bedroom apartment. 
Why? Because the rental cost for one of those one-bedroom apartments in Vancouver is about $2,800. Can you imagine? You know, while we bemoan rental costs and uh, the mortgage rates and all the rest, in certain parts of the country, it's a wonder there's anything but the muckety-mucks living there. Like, how can that possibly be? $2,800 a month for a one-bedroom in Vancouver? So, according to Stats Canada, average income for 15 years of age and older is about $62,250. So, you just wonder what's going on here. So, you know, the economists, it must be nice. So they say, well, maybe 30% isn't, you know, an accurate benchmark number to be looking at any longer. Maybe we should be talking about 35%, 40%. Add into it then legal costs, ongoing maintenance and upkeep of your home. Imagine being in a position where the only way, if you indeed want to buy a home, the largest investment most of us will ever make in our lives, and there's nothing wrong with being a renter, of course not. But just imagine in the neighborhood of 40, 45% of your income for housing and housing alone. And we cannot get people to realize that this issue that's been growing for years, whether it be keeping out foreign investment that use it as simply an equity property and or big hedge funds from the United States coming in and gobbling up all of the new units. This is a nutty problem. So imagine the economist quick said, well, maybe 30% isn't reasonable anymore. Canadians with a median income haven't been able to afford a house uh, on that median income for 30 years. It is a crisis getting away from us in short order and we know a lot of the solves to some of our societal ills is absolutely directly associated with housing and which municipality is going to jump out and get in front of everybody else and be bullish and aggressive on tiny homes they really suit the bill for an awful lot of people in this province not everybody i mean you can't squat a family of five in a tiny home necessarily but i wonder where we're going to see more of that Good to see that the Registered Nurses Union has struck a tentative agreement with the province. Their president, Yvette Coffey, is recommending the deal to the some 5,800 members. I don't know when the ratification vote is going to take place, but I think it's encouraging that if Ms. Coffey is pretty optimistic about the strength of this contract, hopefully the outcomes will be what they're intended to be regarding actually keeping the nurses we have on staff in their role in the province, working for the public sector as opposed to leaving for greener pastures elsewhere or moving off to this problematic travel agency. But anyway, that's part of it. And we should be talking about competition, lots on that front, and that covers virtually every sector of the economy. We have a competitive problem in the country, which leads to a productivity problem in the country, but I'll, I'll let you broach that from whatever angle you see fit. I'll throw this one out there for the controversy's sake. So I think there are legitimate discussions, debates, and questions to be asked about the names that remain on certain buildings and the statues. Now, st you know, statues aren't history. Books are history, by and large. And, you know, some of the folks who, back in their era, did things that are no longer acceptable today, and some of them absolutely did contribute to the country. Let's use John McDonald, John A. McDonald, for an example. Of course, the first prime minister, who, you know, has a problematic side story. There's no doubt about that. But there was a conversation happening here in this city, in this province, about the statue of Gaspar Corte Real, Portuguese explorer. We got bamboozled by the Portuguese on this one. We just did. You know, Corte Real's attachment to the province is all bad. So he makes his way here. He kidnaps or abducts some 57 indigenous people that he turned to slavery. 
He did absolutely nothing beyond that in this province. Yet the Portuguese government sends us this statue, and we give it a prominent place right outside a confederation building property. You know, So there's a difference between different characters in history, what they did, what contributions they may have made on side of some of their darker components of their own role, historically speaking. But the Corte Real statue, <laughs> what's, what's the argument for keeping that around? Absolutely zero contribution beyond kidnapping 57 ind indigenous people and turning them into slaves. Remarkable stuff. All right, we're on Twitter. Or VOCM Open Line, follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. But let's have a great show. That requires you in the queue. Dave's here to talk about Bill C-18. What's that? It's the Online News Act. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Dave, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. How are you? Doing okay this morning. How about you? Well, boy, I'm <clears throat> doing okay. But the uh, reason I call this morning is because I'm flabbergasted at what we just seen it almost seems too arrogant of government and the people that made this decision so fleetingly that they don't care that it appears what it looks like and of course I am talking about Bill C-18 and basically only the opinion of those that voted for it to pass that they feel that, I guess, they are part of a group that deserves to basically say what news content Canadians are allowed to see and also what news content Canadians are allowed to share. Well, that's not what the Online News Act does. It effectively does do that. I mean, right now it's limiting in, in its basic appearance as legislation to the majors such as Meta and you know uh, Google, Google. Uh, at that, this is basically something whereby now for the right to be able to pass or share news around that you're going to have to pay some form of homage, I guess, or a fee for the, for the right to do so to certain bodies that will collect that fee. Well, Google's already started to block Canadian news content on their search engine. You know, I don't know how big a deal this is, but it does seem like the legislation is pretty flawed. I mean, when Minister Rodriguez was shocked that Google and Meta reacted the way they did, obviously they didn't follow along with the exact same story in Australia. So they worked on it, worked on it, worked on it, and came to some sort of compromise. But I think it's worth noting that some 80% of advertising monies spent in this country are spent with Google and Facebook and Instagram, I guess, if you include Meta's different platforms here. So with all of the media outlets, we're basically giving them free content. Now, it doesn't indeed lead to a click on a link from, say, VOCM.com, brings people back to our website, but they really are using an awful lot of generated content for free. Now... There's an argument to be made about how that we should uh, approach that, but the legislation does nothing to talk about the consolidation of media in the country, which is a bigger problem than Google or Meta. So, you know, look at the profits for Rogers and Bell. Look at the consolidation in the newsprint industry, the talks between Post Media and the Toronto Star for a merger. These are bigger conversations, I think, for what it means for how and where and who's providing media content in the country. What do you think? Well, what I do think is that given those points if the media is not truly owned by government or controlled by government then it should be treated like the rest of the world 
if you got to find a way to make money and whatever the case may be then you find a way to do it on your platform or whatever one that you have but as far as making me basically or you uh, be subjected to somebody's decision that based on who's paying and who's not what content you're allowed to see but you can still uh, see it doesn't because re- not all not all news comes from forms of news media but i think this will affect even the way that people share their own information i i mean i don't know how that would work i'm not sure what you're getting at there but you can still go to the national post website or the toronto star or vocm or the telegram or cbc or global or ctv or the rebel or wherever you want to get your news the problem is you won't be able to go to the google search engine and get it there that's the big concern now google and you know people your point that you know you need a business model that works but sometimes some of these fights are simply unwinnable i mean taking on the giants like google's and meta and apple's of the world is virtually impossible for 99 percent of every media outlet in the world let alone canada yep and i gotta tell you i think it's also virtually impossible for government to really truly dictate to or to control what happens with these big uh, entities such as you know the the Google and the Facebooks and whatever else in this world but I also feel that it's in no way shape or form government's role to determine who makes money off of media or how who gets paid and who don't and in this indication this actual act affects me that I don't have access to the same world news, and I guess the world don't have the same access to our news. I just don't feel that that's something that should be controlled with a dollar sign. The world will have access. Canadians won't. So if you are living in the United States or in the UK or wherever, you'll be able to still get all the content just like it looks like uh, prior to this. And even the legislation isn't going to be fully implemented until the end of the year, but Google's fighting back immediately. No surprise. Exactly what they did in Australia, as I mentioned earlier. So I don't know if this is the end of the story, but... In some form or fashion, government is already involved. And not talk about media bailout money, but I mentioned like the Competition Bureau. They do look at things like this because competition is an important feature of the Canadian economy. And we just don't have enough of it, whether it be in the telecom business or in the grocery business. Uh, it wasn't that long ago we had eight major players in the grocery business. Now we have five. The Competition Bureau was now speaking out on it, but we've seen what it means to walk inside a grocery store. We've seen what it uh, means to pay your telecom bill, given the consolidation inside of that industry. People might even call it a monopoly, and they're not too far off being correct on that front. So government does indeed noodle in on some of this stuff. Is it overreach? Should they be doing it at all? I don't know. If we don't have some sort of grasp on it, we'll have... One or two players in every sector of the economy, which is no good for Canadians. No good at all, is it? Not at all. And I think basically it's an area that government should be keeping its nose out of, and which is why I would ask all of our federal MPs that supported this to tell us why. Because honestly, you can see today why it's easy to feed, I guess, the worries and the concerns of the effects of government's decisions upon us because most recently, the past few years, um, if there was ever a chance for, shall we say, conspiracy theory or 
contrary to the way things are, are going and the way government wants you to think, that they're making it pretty easy with a lot of these things. Everything that they're that they're doing now from the the overreach on on gun control to this i mean honestly what gives these people the right to think that they are right and the rest of us are all also off that they got to protect us to see what we're allowed to see or what or basically i mean like this online act the news act or whatever the case may be or online activity act or whatever they're calling it is something that you know like uh you got to question the wisdom behind did we need this or what's the purpose for it i mean i can't speak to anybody's motivation on this front but we do indeed have a consolidation in the media problem in the country we just do right and it's it's a big problem so if this is the right approach obviously not because it's not going to sit well with those two big companies they hold way bigger levers and sticks or whatever the right word is uh versus the government so I don't think this is the end of the story. I think just like elsewhere, they'll come up with some sort of compromise that works for the big ones. But this doesn't restrict what people can see. It's just where they can see it. You can go to your favorite media outlet all day long, every day, still get the news stories from them, regardless of this online news act. It's just about how it gets shared. That, that, that's I didn't read that into what I read about it. I'm actually surprised that you're saying that. But at the same time, I think it's probably time that rather than looking at carte blanche what government does why don't people like Seamus O'Regan and Yvonne Jones Goody Hutchings, Joanne Thompson, Terrence Rogers Ken McDonald uh, and Clifford Small, I'm not sure how he voted on it because he's in opposition but let's see, they voted against why don't they come and tell us why they did this yeah, no, fair enough. I'd love to have Minister Rodriguez on because it, it was a bad look for him to say he was shocked with their reaction because there's nothing shocking about it. But you say that you were surprised by something I said. What was that, just so I, I know what we're talking about? I guess I was surprised by, what was it, uh, just a couple of sentences back, though. Um, that would have been uh, basically how you have such consolidation and whatever within the media, within Canada. I guess I didn't realize that that was uh, so. I don't claim to know everything about the media, for sure. But at the same time, the consolidation of the media, I think, under this act is only one part of what happens here. Because technically, if somebody goes out and they're not a syndicated uh, news media outlet, and they report some type of news or whatever, say from a Facebook Live or some kind of on TikTok or was it Instagram or whatever the case may be, if they're live on the scene or whatever, it'll limit what you can see from that too. Yeah, it's where you can see it, not whether or not you can see it, period. But uh, I understand and appreciate the call and the perspective here this morning, Dave. I'd love to know exactly what the motivation is, if it is indeed to try to spare smaller media outlets, because without advertising dollars, most of them just go up in smoke, right? Exactly. And if, if over 80% of the media advertising dollars in the country, in this country, are spent on those two platforms, that creates some sort of problem. How you address that, I don't know. But I think it's to our collective detriment. It's 
especially if the smallest outlets go by the wayside. Because, I mean, just think about the things that concern you where you live. If you didn't have the Rec House Weekly, then you wouldn't have all the news stories and uh, personal stories that we get, for instance, post, uh, post-tropical storm Fiona. If you didn't have smaller outlets covering town councils and those types of things, which are important, they are. And if they go away and all we have is the national entities covering the big headline grabbers, then we're going to miss out on an awful lot of news that directly relates to your day-to-day living. Well, consolidation didn't help the fishery, I can tell you that. Basically, it led to communities with no fish plants, and the bigger companies absorb everything and then control everything. Uh, We don't need to see that in the media, and we don't need to see any attempts by government beyond the overreach that we've seen already before I'm going to start turning my nose up. To me, it's like just awaiting, it's like another box checked on the way to communism. Sorry, I'm going to push back against that in every regard and every fiber in my soul. But what I've got to say here is this. It's somewhat confusing. Like I didn't realize and never really thought about how much consolidation there is within the media and how they rely upon each other and trade news and stuff like that. So by eliminating the small ones, because they can't compete, like as you said, the smaller media being challenged to fundraise or be able to keep themselves going, uh, I guess effectively legislation is helping to go towards those ends where we, we are being very controlled on exactly what we're allowed to see and on what we're allow- eventually allowed to say. Appreciate the time, Dave. MPs, come out and answer the question because I'll be coming back and asking you again. you got an opportunity now to tell us exactly why you voted for something that in many people's eyes look a lot like communism. Thanks for this. Thanks, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I would also like to hear a little bit from MPs, not only about carbon tax and clean fuel regulations, but what that means at Marine Atlantic. You know, seriously, if there's going to be additional charge at Marine Atlantic related to the 33 million liters of fuel they burn each year, then where do you think that uh, where do you think that ending that cost will end up coming out of my pocketbook? I would imagine. Let's take a break. When we come back, Don wants to talk about the price of groceries. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers. Your go to source before you get on the go. 530 to 9 a.m. weekdays. Your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Don, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. How you doing? OK, thank you. How about you? Oh, good, 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 good. And uh, thank you. Uh, but uh, before I just jump on one little example. Uh, I'll make it short. I just want to thank you for your continued shout out to local amateur sports. Uh, thank, thanks so much for doing that. Happy to do it. Big fan. Yes, 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 yeah. And um, yeah. Oh, and just to continue from the last conversation, you said uh, you tagged on there, Patty, and said, well, if we don't have stuff like the Port of Bass or the Rec House uh, News or whatever their lovely little papers down there, Bulletin, well, what do we have? <laughs> we have we have their agenda then and what they you know so those little small media things I, I agree 100% are so important yeah you know until you lose them you don't realize what they actually brought to the uh, conversation right. because if it's the shoreline or it's a mm-hmm. one of the smaller newspapers in any community right across the province or across the country you know things that happen inside for instance and I'll keep using this example things that happen inside your town council meetings are pretty important things for your day to day life most of what we look to for mm-hmm. our day to day stuff is mm-hmm. delivered by municipal so unless people think it's a good idea for American-owned companies giving us the biggest headlines and nothing more and opinion pieces, mm-hmm. then we're just going down a really stupid rabbit hole, I think. 
Absolutely. And then it's just more partisan news. That's all it is. Pretty much. Yeah. I was just going to say, Patty, I just had smacked in the face last week there um, uh, an example. I said, oh, my goodness, what do I do with this? This is just too stark of an example. I said, I got to give Patty a call. So I used to live out on the Cape Shore on the West Coast, and I moved a couple of years ago. I did some shopping for some uh, senior citizens when I used to go into the local town of Stephenville, which is about an hour away. Each, each way, who um, had a, uh, sometimes it's a challenge to get in. So I pick up a few groceries and stuff like that. So anyway, uh, the lady asked me one day, of course, they're on a fixed income and whatnot, like many seniors are, and uh, pensioners. And she said, and watching the flyers like <laughs> many of us are doing, um, she said, listen, butter's on sale for me. Uh, would you pick me up a few tubs of butter? And it was from a big box store that, you know, we're all familiar with here. And... Um, they had it on sale. Now, granted, it was on sale, okay? This was only a year and a half ago. So this is the important part of the story. It's only, I don't even know if it was that. I don't remember exactly, Patty, but it was no longer than that. It might have been only a year ago, because I can't remember if it was uh, what time of the summer it was, but it was in the summer. So um, I goes in, and she wanted me to pick up 12 tubs of this butter, and she uses it in her baking, and of course, it's the, um, without saying the name of it, it is the margarine that tastes a lot like butter. I think we all know what that is. Okay. And uh, so I uh, was in, and, and uh, I said, I, I, so this all started with me picking up some uh, for the cabin, picking up a few groceries uh, last week to go to the cabin. And I, I wanted some butter for the cabin, fry up the eggs, all the rest, right? And so I goes into uh, one of our local grocery stores here, big big chain store that is well known, and um, grocery store. It's not a department store, strictly grocery store. And I'm looking, and of course, we know the price of butter. Like some of it's 8 and $9, and some of the specialty ones that come from fancy creameries and PEI and stuff like that are like $9 for a pound of butter. So I start looking over on, uh, to the margarine area for the uh, margarine that tastes like butter. Because, you know, save a few dollars. It's usually on for, you know, three-something or whatever. Well, I'm out of touch. I hadn't bought a tub of this in a while. The standard price on the shelf in this store, which is usually a, a well-priced because it's a store, $5.65. So I went, I don't know the price that that lady asked me to pick it up, but I'm going to call her and see if she remembers. Well, sure enough, this lady's got a mind for like a steel trap for our sales and stuff. She said, so when I talked to her, I said, you remember the price? She says, I remember exactly the price. But granted, it was on sale. But let's just say it wasn't, so tack on maybe 50 cents or whatever. The sale price a year ago, not much longer, was a dollar and fourteen cents to five sixty five. Come on, Patty, that's not double. That's not triple. That's not quadruple. Oh, it's madness. And not only are the products becoming more expensive, the servings are also shrinking. So that's a double whammy. I don't know if people read any of the Competition Bureau report last week that was released last week about the grocery industry. It's pretty interesting stuff, though. So they had a look at a trend that began before the pandemic about grocery store margins. Now... The Competition Bureau has actually used, carefully chosen the word, said they have grown modestly, but also meaningfully. So it's hard to dig into that and get a you know a real definition of what either of those words mean in this context. But everyone who's ever been to a grocery store in the last couple of years can tell you in no uncertain terms, regardless of what it means for grocery store margins or regardless of what it means for their profits or pay for their executives, it's punitive. It's prohibitive mm-hmm. for so many Canadians mm-hmm. to afford anything. It, it, it really is. It really is. It's uh, And so going back to the last caller, I'm th- likening back to either my grade 10 my economics class or maybe my 
you know, general studies, uh, first year university economics. Um, and he talked about, well, you know, he pushed back against communism, and uh, I don't blame him. But remember the general concept: communism isn't all bad. It's used around just by bad people, and uh, and you know, it's about sharing. And sure, it has its it let down too. But uh, I'm all for like the last caller was saying, less government control, and most of us would agree with that. But I don't know, like I, everybody, I don't know when we'll get there. But everybody's starting to grow a bit of a garden again, or a lot of people are. Some people are even you know putting a few chickens where they can in the yard to get you know. And uh, but in the meantime, you. You, you do shopping, Patty, a lot of it for your family because I listen to your show regularly. Um, I'm sure you've seen it. Um, I see couples going through the fruit and where, the, where, where they were picking up a bag of apples or a bag of oranges, uh, one or two, you know, because it's tight. Yeah, and we've all figured out very quickly just about the amount of food. You buy with all the right intentions, but then, you know, through the jigs and the reels, and you bought a full bag of whatever, might be apples or anything else, and before you get to the end of the bag, they might not look as attractive as they did when you bought them. Consequently, for many products, end up in the garbage or in in the landfill. I'm avoiding that like the plague. Whatever we can do, like I'm the leftover king. It breaks my heart to throw anything out that I can possibly, you know, stomach. So I shop very thrifty compared to years past. And again, I have no earthly idea how some people are making ends meet. I just don't know. I hear you, Patty, what you're saying, and I think, you know what, we've all, with respect to, yeah, less, we're all minding our, 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 if we're not, we're we're getting that way, we're minding what we're buying, so there's less waste and all that, and hopefully that gets us through this next little area until we can get our greenhouses set up, and or there are some, I, I hate to say controls, but man, just looking at that butter thing, and you know, I'm not—I can't give explanations of all the groceries because I'm really just not educated on them. But I'm sure other stuff has done, has done more than double because that that butter thing I just talked about—that was almost five times inflation in one year. Yeah, we like orange juice, and you know, for what I'll call the large orange juice. I mean, there's four of us, so things mm-hmm. go very quickly in the house. Mm-hmm. Just one of those a picture people can picture a large Tropicana orange juice. Mm-hmm. Used to be able to get it for six bucks. No, sir, it was eleven bucks last time I looked, and I Ooh. went home without it. <laughs> I'm thinking, yeah, I can't do it. Eleven bucks. Eleven bucks for a, a thing of orange juice. Now, I know I can't do much about the crop damage in California or anywhere else, but, I mean, I looked at it. I had it in the cart, and I put it back. <laughs> I can't do that. I, I, got bucks. I got you, Patty. And, you know, you got to get other colors on, and we could go on forever. But here's what I'd like to see, if possible, and I know we ever would, right? Because, you know, especially in the off-seasons, we know a lot of our fruits and vegetables is labeled rain on them. They come from Mexico or South America or different parts of the world, right? But uh, usually a lot of them from that area because it costs a lot more to bring it across the water. But from uh, Central American stuff, it's, uh, you know, so most of our stuff comes from there, a lot of it. That said, I'd like to see a little path flow. Somebody just do it on a chalkboard, whatever, of what's really going back to the farmer. And in between, and I want to, you know, if possible, where's, where's the big money going? Where, where is that five times increase going? Because I don't really think it's going back to that farmer. And the, the price of fuel has gone up, but I don't think it, that the fuel's the big thing. Like uh, somewhere somebody's getting, you know, gouging. Well, there's a further complication when it makes its way through the United States just based on currency exchange as well, which contributes to it. And everything mm-hmm. that, and every person and every company that it touches on its way to our grocery store shelves, they're taking their bit, which of course that's what they do. They're in business. They're not doing mm-hmm. it just yeah, for the right. good of their health. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. everyone's cut is getting a little bit bigger given the fact that they're also seeing increased operating expenses. So consequently, they take a bigger cut. And who gets yeah. to pay for that? I do. Mm-hmm. You do. Yeah, it's accumulative. Yeah, accumulative effect, I guess. 
Dan. Yeah, thanks again. Thank Take you, care. Yeah, they love the show. Bye-bye. Thank Dan. you, Don. Bye-bye. Yeah. All right, before we get to the break, let's go to line number four, our three. Good morning, Emma. You're on the air. Hello, Petty. Hi there. How are you? I'm doing okay on this rainy old Tuesday. How about you? I'm fine. Listen, I got a problem. I let my cat out six weeks ago and never come back. Oh, no. And I don't know now. He got hit by a car one time. He came, he made a home. But this time he never, I let him out and never come back. Six weeks. And I don't know where he's at. And I can't get out because I'm crippled myself. Well, is the cat wearing a collar? No, he's not. His name is Joey. He's uh, three years old. And where do you live, Emma? Where did you let the cat out? Oh. What, what part of the province are you living in, I'm sorry? Bell Island. Oh, you're on Bell Island. Well, at least yes. it's a potential captive audience over there for little Joey. So I guess folks on Bell Island, just uh, describe the cat for us, Emma. Uh, his name is Joey. He's three years old. Uh-huh. He's, uh, well, it's nothing to him. He's a small little thing. Uh, he won't go with everybody. Only way he go with somebody if he, you got treats. But he won't let you take him up. He's foxy, and that's all I could tell you, because uh, he won't let me take him up along with somebody else. Well, hopefully Joey didn't scratch the eyes out of some youngster or something as well. So let's hope that Joey's found on Belle Island return to you. Emma, so people can just call us, and if anyone knows where Joey is, we'll let you know. How's that? Yeah, you want my phone number? If you want to give it out live on the air, you can. Go ahead. Okay, 765. Uh-huh. One, one, four, four, five. Good luck, Emma. I appreciate the time this morning. Fingers crossed. Okay, Patty. Take care. You too. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Uh, let's go to line number four. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. I want to start with um, acknowledging the hope that I see on, on Saturday, our business did uh, the main entertainment events for a whole bunch of communities, uh, m- most of them on the uh, northeastern Avalon. We were in 15 places all at the same time, and 50 young people, mostly young people, stepped up and made what I thought was going to be an impossible day uh, go really, really well. So I want to thank the communities for supporting us, but more importantly, sometimes I, I, I feel, I guess, down on young people, but i got to tell you, when, when, we, when we trust them and we put our faith in them, um, I was so proud and amazed with what we managed to pull off on Saturday. So, so there is hope. Of course, there is. I think uh, the youth of the country get a bad rap, unnecessarily so. Yeah, and, you know. Again, I, I think though a lot of it comes down to expectations, and and uh, and I, you know, when, when as I was facing Saturday, I was like, oh man, you know, I, I hope this works out, and and the hours that the people worked and the diligence and the fact every one of them showed up, every single one, not one of them called in sick, not one of them didn't do more than I could have ever expected of them. Um, and, and some of those people I, I hadn't even met. They were friends or family members of employees that we had. So, and what exactly were they doing, Tom? Sorry. So uh, we provided bouncy castles and slides and laser tag. We were, we were in, we were in at the same time, we were in Clarenville, Portugal, St. Phillips, St. John's, Mount Pearl, Paradise, CBS, Bay Bulls, Lab City, Flat Rock, Pooch Cove, Pippi Park, three private events. The, 
all the same, all the exact same time. Uh, and and you know they were standing by bounce castles or setting them up or, or taking them down. And so anybody who went to a candidate event in any of those communities, they you know they were interacting with these young people and with our equipment. Nice. Just yeah, well, it was amazing. It's amazing. The weather was beautiful, of course, as well. That helps. Yeah. So I, I want to try and jump over to um, the forest fires and just trying to grasp the. The, 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 just the massiveness of them and the impact on them and how Canada in particular, well, you know, it seems, again, the whole boiling frog analogy just seems so appropriate because you know, it, it seems like every part of the country is being subjected to these natural disasters one after another, but we seem to normalize them and, and then we seem to move on. But, but I think it's important to stop and just, just try and grasp, you know, what's happening. Like just... Canada is is warming as a country twice as fast than the rest of the world. And and a lot of that is because we're losing ice, sea ice and snow cover, which is increasing the amount of absorption of heat that we can do. But the north in particular is warming three times faster. And and these forest fires um are gonna are going to exacerbate that warming because not not only um um do they do do they does the smoke and and in that smoke, which is amazing, there's so many things. And a lot of times we talk about CO2, but CO2 is, is is not the most harmful of the stuff that's in wildfire smoke. We have sulfur dioxide, we have nitrogen dioxide, we have the carbon dioxide, of course. We have volatile organic compounds. We have ozone, and we have fine particulate matter. But when it comes to air quality, nitrogen dioxide, ozone, and fine particulate matter are like the three things that that really impact humans. And in particular, fine particulate matter which is just stuff you can't see with the human eye. It's invisible. So you, you could have, you could have a, a, a very unhealthy ear that looks beautiful. It won't be orange. It won't have any color. Um, my wife and I were in, in uh, Beijing, and we brought in 95 masks because we thought it was going to be you know, so bad. And then it was these beautiful days. But when you went on the weather app for, in that city, it would show that, that the pollution level was up in purple, which was like the highest. It was unhealthy. Uh, but it looked beautiful. There was no, there was no sign of like the smog and stuff that people expect. But it was this fine particulate matter, which is so small that it actually gets through all the body's natural defense mechanisms through the nose and gets deep, deep into our lungs and has very significant impact, especially on people who are pregnant or spend a lot of time outside. But but people who smoke, it, it's exacerbated. But just people are unhealthy, and and it can actually lead, in the most extreme cases, to heart attacks, strokes, and sudden death. And so, you know, all these things went, you know, the feedback loops that we're creating. So if you take just one fire in BC, the Donny Creek wildfire, which is actually visible from space, which most likely they figure is going to burn off season. And may we start again next year after the snow comes off because it's so deep and organic. So it's not only is it burning along the treetops, but it's burning deep, deep into the, into the ground and, and destroying the soil. Generally, forest fires will generally hop across the trees, but if they burn hot enough. They'll actually burn down into the peats and peat into the bogs, and so so it's destroying the quality of the soil, and that also has the impact of meaning that most likely what grows back may may actually instead of being forced may actually grow back as just just a savanna, just as a grassland, and 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 that is that is then further exacerbating the carbon problem because the nice thing with mature trees is they'll absorb up to 100 pounds of CO2 a year. Whereas little saplings, if they do, you know, if that's what grows back, it's it's minuscule how much how much carbon dioxide that they will absorb. So 
So just that one fire alone would make it the fifth worst fire season ever. And and that's now that's at this point right now, let alone after it burns through uh, however long it's going to keep burning. And that's just one fire. And right now there's over 400 fires, and half of them are considered out of control. It's, you know, I don't think anyone should be surprised, but it is interesting, if not remarkable, that we seemingly, as a country, can't have a conversation about the forest fires. Because in some political corners, well, it's all about arson. In others, it's all about climate change. When, in fact, there's, you know, there's people been investigated, arrested, and charged with arson, as there is every single year. But the difference between the numbers of the fires and the numbers of hectares burnt cannot be solely based on arsonists. It's just not factually even reasonable, let alone accurate. So, again, we struggle with these conversations as a country when we really don't need to have that type of struggle. It's very, very real. The conditions with which these fires are able to be started, whether it be with a discar- recklessly discarded cigarette to a lightning strike to an arsonist big lighter, regardless, the fires are burning quicker, hotter, farther, uh, and longer than they have in the past. That's just what's happening. So, again, you know, the conversation gets stopped right away in some corners when someone says, well, it's just all arson. No, it's not all arson. There's absolutely some arsonists because the stories are there. They've been charged, right? You know, the investigation has taken place. They've been proven to be having lit a fire, but that doesn't add into the numbers of fires and the severity of the fires, so it's tricky how we find ourselves here. Yeah, and there's always been pyromaniacs, people with mental illness that somehow, you know, get off on um, starting fires, and um, and and to your point, you know, that doesn't explain. I mean, it's just, it's just a, a, a scientific fact that as the climate warms, it actually does two things. It dries out the fuel, the forest, and the forest floor, which where there's dead particular matter. So it dries it out. So it makes it more easier to combust. The warmer the climate gets, it actually increases the chances of lightning. And lightning starts 50% of fires. And, and unfortunately, it's it's not uh, linear. It's not it's not like um, with most bad things, it's exponential. Um, so, you know, basically what happens as because of the feedback loop, because we're because of the damage that's being done, because we're heating, we're warming, it, it actually starts to warm faster. And, and then all the consequences get worse exponentially. Now, these, these are just like observations. So so these are, fa- you know, scientific facts. People can debate them if they want. However, you know, we all play a role in our actions. And I, and I feel like the climate anxiety, which a lot of people feel, which is real, um, causes people, unfortunately, to put their heads even deeper in the sand. And, and, you know, I just want to call on people just to do little things on their own. And, you know, and that can become uh, socially contagious. You know, if enough people, it's not enough to just acknowledge it in your quiet moments or to think about it, but if enough people start taking, you know, micro steps, and, you know, I talk about like bringing your reusable coffee cup to Tim Hortons, but but instead of, you know, blaming politicians or blaming billionaires or blaming people who who we want to blame on our problems, like, like each one of us, uh, contributes to the challenges, and, you know. You know, and everything is related. So, like for example, we're going to have forest fires in the final Labrador, but now apparently, the fitness of our forest fighter firefighters is is has declined to the point that maybe they shouldn't even be out fighting forest fires if you, you know measured by physical testing. You know, well, we, they had a high failure rate, especially in Labrador, as reported. Uh, I do have to get to the news. So, final thought, Tom, before we have to go. Well, you know, final thought is you know everybody um, just. You know, just Google what you can do and just try and take micro micro choices, make little smaller steps, and, and we can do this all together. Everyone, take care.
Thank you, Tom. Bye-bye. Okay. All right, let's get a uh, break for the news. Uh, John's right there in the queue to talk about the first phase and what people are calling gun confiscation or the buyback program based on the most recent gun control legislation. John, next, then you. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Hey, John. Hey, uh, Patty. How are you? Okay, sir. You. Right on. So, Patty, I'm just uh, curious to ask to know uh, where is it going with this uh, gun confiscation proposal that the government is proposing to take our firearms, right? Okay, I'm sorry, what's the question? The question is, like, where are we going to be able to keep our, let's say, our hunting rifles for the fall, right? Well, I mean, there's a list of now prohibited weapons, I suppose, is the right word to refer to them. The big part of this so-called first phase of this either, I don't know what people want to call it, buyback or confiscation or what have you, but it's only going to be ever confiscated if you breach the rules about transferring, selling, or returning your handgun to the manufacturer. So there's actually a contract held by the group that represents uh, Canadian hunters. That's the, what is that, the Canadian Sporting Arms and Ammunition Association, I think it's called. So they're the ones brokering this at this moment in time, but where it ends, I'm not really sure 100% what that means, but if your gun or your long gun is not on the list, the so-called prohibited or banned weapons and you'll be able to keep it as far as i can tell okay because i uh, googled it and it was as clear as mud to read eh? <laughs> yeah i get that yeah right on so uh, i won't take up too much of your time uh, hats off to uh, fury there right that was amazing what he did on that 17 cents there he knocked 14 cents off amazing premier fury yes but, of yeah. course, th- th- those new monies, those additional costs, they're being delivered to you courtesy of the federal government. Yeah, but we would have had 17 more cents to pay on a liter of gas as, as of July 1st, right? The implication on gasoline, it went from uh, increase to three cents, basically, because we were the province was charging 11 cents in carbon tax. The federal backstop is 14 cents. There's a different implication on diesel. The big one is for home heating fuels, where you do see an additional 17 cents. That hasn't happened yet, but it's likely to happen this week on the 6th. Yeah, I, I would I would say that it's going to happen for sure, right? Oh, I don't think anything's going to change between now and then. I think you're 100% right, which is where the massive problem lies. Look, I get it. I don't want to spend any more on gas, whether it be $0.03 cents or, or $0.13, cents, but... It's the home heating crowd that are going to be just pummeled here. It's already wicked expensive to fill up your oil tank to heat your home. An additional 17 cents per liter is going to absolutely knock the wind out of a lot of homes sales. I mean, it's 40,000 plus homes that are using oil. So that's where the major issue is for me. Right now, sounds good, Patty, for sure, man. Anything else you want to talk about? Well, it's just uh, we have to watch and see all the time. It seems with this Trudeau government, we're really in the dark until things are on the table, eh? Yeah. On our table, that is. Yeah, the legislation uh, regarding gun control, look, a couple of things. It was pretty flawed from the get-go. I mean, if there were firearms on that list that were banned and others that weren't banned that were pretty much the exact same thing with the exact same capacity and the exact same uh, capacity or capabilities, then why? What? 
what difference did any of this make? You know, if we were going to talk about public safety in particular, then the serious and the most concentrated focus absolutely has to be at the border. The Chiefs of Police Association are quite clear on this. The vast majority of handguns used in violent crime on Canadian streets came from the United States of America. So if we don't put our prime focus there, we're missing the boat. We're, mis- we're just kind of missing the point. I think Canadians are okay with gun control, but it's got to make sense. Yeah, totally. Right? Yeah, for sure, man. Right on, though, I need some clarification on that because, uh, like now, most Canadians right now are figuring that we're going to lose everything and be left with one single shot 22. Well, how do you hunt with that? (laughs) Yeah, at this moment, that's not where we are, but I get people's concerns because things changed, right? Their initial list grew without them even telling us what was added to the list. So they've created a lot of their own problems there. (laughs) Absolutely. Right on, Patty. Thanks very much, and uh, that's good clarification. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Take care. You too. All right. Bye-bye. So, I mean, you know, I guess it depends on who you are, what organization you're with, whether or not you're a firearm owner. You know, no one's going to come to your home and confiscate this weapon unless it's one of the ones that, you know, prior to this gun control legislation was already on the prohibited list. So there's a buyback. Now, it's, I understand why people will say that that's being confiscated, but in some form, you're absolutely right. Now, you get compensate, compensated for your confiscation, but I think the initial contract in this first round of buybacks is somewhere over $700,000. So the merits of this, I think, are worthy of debate. Because, look, handguns, if you're a sports shooter, fair enough. If you like to go out to the range, fair enough. But most of the handguns that are on the street are in the hands of criminals. So you're right in saying that, you know, the criminal mind will not abide by legislation, which is why I go back to where I always start this gun control uh, conversation with. It has to be the prime focus and investment at the border. You know, there's stories out there where they purposefully trace a gun that came from a gun show as far south as the state of Georgia and how it ended up and how long it took for that to find its way to the streets of Toronto, for instance. If we know what's happening, which we do, you know, there's confiscations and arrests, and there has been not only banned, uh, uh, firearms put on the banned list, there is an increase from 10 years to a maximum of 14 years for those types of illegal import of guns. So that's helpful. But unless there's more monies associated with searching and consequent seizures and arrests, then we're probably not going to get where we hope to be with public safety. Right? Now, do people need what the so-called dangerous-looking or more dangerous-looking things like the AR-15 or what have you? Some hunters will say they do. I don't have any of these weapons, nor do I want any of these weapons, but I think there's a conversation as to whether or not they belong in the hands of individual Canadians. But the handgun focus, I think, makes sense. Uh, and it, they're not going to come and get it, but there is distinct laws about transferring, selling, or even returning you're going directly to the manufacturer as opposed to going through the CS AAA and being part of the buyback program. Anyway, you want to talk about that, which is a tricky subject, but I'm into it. Let's go to line number two. Paul, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Patty, I want to call this morning about the food banks here in town. Uh, the last three or four months, I just started to go to food banks for the first time in my life. Um, and I've noticed, Patty, I know there's an old saying, beggars can't be choosers. But uh, I've experienced actually three food banks here in the here in the city, St. John's, and uh, I'm not going to lie to you, about a third of the food that they give you, Patty, is expired. 
and I've had stuff as far back as 2021. And so, of course, you bring that home, and then you have to throw about a third of it away. And, and, and basically what I'm calling for this morning is maybe somebody from one of the food banks. Like, I can't single out any one, because with my experience with three food banks now, this, uh, at least a third of what I've got is expired. And I'm just wondering, like, why they don't check the expiration dates on the food that they give you before they give it to you? I think they probably do. I'm just thinking if, some, if somebody doesn't look at the dates, I can imagine how sick they would get, Patty. Depends on the product. Like, give me, this, give me an example of one food stuff or another that was expired and you threw it away. Like, is it a tin of beefaroni uh, or is it what? Well, yeah, some is canned food, but some is also, they, they tend to give you some freezer products as well. There's some stuff that looks like a pizza, I'm not, a croissant or something it's called. or And literally, Patty, some of it's, I think the oldest product I had was around 2020. And that's not a lie, Patty. Now, I don't have a cell phone because if I did, I would literally take pictures just to show because people probably won't believe that. But it's the truth, Patty. 2020, 2021, 2022. And that's not just one food bank, Patty. That's three. And like I said, I don't want to say their names because that wouldn't be fair. But, again, it, yes, you're right, it could be a canned product, and I know canned products can last a little while longer, but this has been some freezer products as well. Fair enough. And uh, I've had to throw them in the garbage, Patty. Yeah, your first-hand knowledge is certainly uh, better than mine not having that type of uh, first-hand knowledge. You know, I think the food industry, and not just about food banks, because obviously these are good people doing the very best they can, yep. but yep. for the food industry itself, we've got to have a little bit clearer understanding about what those dates on various products actually means. So That's I true. think it's a bit of a PR campaign as much as anything, because many Canadians, they'll look at that best before date and consider it and read it as an expiry date which it's not you know there's lots of stuff that come up against the best before date you can 100% eat them afterwards they might not be as nutritious and or as fresh but they're not going to make you sick now some other products like for instance I've I've learned how to grow past that but if it's something like dairy or meat then I don't eat it and I do throw it away, which I try to avoid yep. at all costs. But I think the food industry really should be a little bit more, I'll call it, honest with Canadians because we throw away too much stuff, and a lot of it we probably don't need to. The most recent report that I read from, I can't remember the name of the organization, it's Zero Food Waste Canada, I believe. They estimate that 63% of the food that ends up the landfill is absolutely fit to eat. And that's because we get these dates that are just misleading people. Right on. And really, it's just a matter of opening the product. And the first thing you're going to notice is the smell. I mean, that's a good indication right there, right? If 100%. It's bad, yeah. Before you even taste it. Now, there, I, I did get some margarine, actually, of one of the food banks, and uh, I couldn't even understand the expiration date on the patty. I honestly couldn't. So then I opened it up, and the smell that came off it, my, my, my friend said, Paul, throw it away. Don't even try to take that. And this was margarine. And like I say, I... I appreciate what I do get every month, Patty, but I know now i got to go to the food bank again now this this week, and I know I'm going to get at least a third is going to be expired. And I hear what you're saying. Test the food first. Don't just throw it out, and I don't do that, Patty. No, it's no. It's a canned product, but, Patty, when they give you something from 2020, 2021, 
I think there's something wrong there, Patty. I don't argue no that point. No matter what the product is, right? Yeah. We'll connect with uh, Jody down the Bridges and Hope and see, you know, just inside his operation, what their approach is. You know, because there's an unfortunate reality here as well, Paul, is people, they're going to an event and they ask you to bring a non-perishable food item and people reach to the back of the cupboard, right? And they decide, well, that's something that I'm probably not going to eat, so consequently I will give it away to somebody else. And I, I know that it all starts with a good intention, but we have to be careful as donors and as food bank operators to ensure we're not giving something to someone and unbeknownst to them may indeed have a negative impact on their health. I, I get where you're coming from, and I will check in with a couple of different food banks and talk about their process. Well, that'd be lovely if you could do that, my friend. Even if someone could phone in today, just like I say, you can't single out anyone because, like I say, they're all good people. Yeah. They're, they're, serve, they're serving a lot of people too, Patty, because as you know, the one uh, Corpus Christi closed down last month or something. That's right. So the one I got go to now is actually helping some of those clients. But uh, that's the first time I've gone there. I didn't even know it was there. Uh, can I say the name or should I not do that? A food bank? Uh, sure. I mean, because I'm happy to check in with them and I, I don't mind. You know, like when we introduced Jody Williams, we, uh, we introduced him as to the organization he represents. Same with folks from St. Vincent de Paul and otherwise. So go ahead. Well, this one is on Topsail Road. It's right across from the cemetery. Uh, Cavalry Baptist Church, I believe it's called. Okay. I don't know if you're familiar. I never even knew that was even there, Patty. And I live just right by Sobeys on top of the road. I didn't even know that was there. Because, like I say, I don't have access to a computer or a cell phone. So maybe there's a lot of people that are not even aware of that. The Corpus Christi closed down. These people are actually kind enough to take in some of the clients, you know. I was very, very lucky there. Well, I'm glad it's working out for you. And we did talk about that issue on the show many, many times. We've invited them on to see if their plea for some new space could be afforded to them, whether it be for inexpensive rental and or for free. And unfortunately, it did not work out. But, Paul, uh, uh, Dave Williams, can we get Jody on to talk about how they approach best before dates and stuff when they go to give out to their clients? Maybe we'll get some information. We'll try to get him on here this morning. I appreciate it, for sir. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. Good luck to you, Paul. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Phil's in the queue to talk about the wildfires and maybe some comments made by Tom or a little earlier. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Phil Earl. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking the call. Okay. Uh, I, I want to make a comment. Uh, these wildfires the past couple of months here in Canada has kind of concerned me, and I just I did a little inquiry on it. Anyway, basically, I'll give you a couple of facts. Uh, our carbon footprint yearly from fossil fuels and agriculture is about 700 million tons of uh, carbon dioxide equivalent. And uh, the, the carbon tax and, and, and the federal government's attempt to cut back on these emissions from industry and the use of fossil fuels, at best, has it been it's, some years, it's been about maybe 10 percent. So 50 or 60 million tons of, of carbon output has been uh, reduced because of their procedures, carbon tax and all this stuff. So I asked the question, well, what about all these uh, these forest fires for two months of burning all across Canada? Now, a, a little a couple of figures here to give you an idea of what it is when you burn wood. Uh, one BTU, British Thermal Unit, from burning a natural gas, one million BTU, is, produces 117 pounds of CO2. If it's fuel oil, it's 160 pounds of CO2. If it's coal, it's 200 pounds of CO2. If it's wood, 
it's hard and cold. It's something like uh, 230 or 250, depending on the moisture that's in the wood. So the point being made is that if you burn wood, it produces more carbon dioxide than the equivalent amounts of gas and fuel and coal. So I asked a question to try to get a figure as to what's been happening the past two months. What's the total? And when I read on the Internet, it says that so far this year, as of a couple of weeks ago, 600 million megatons, 600 million tons of carbon dioxide had been produced in these forest fires. Well, that's almost equivalent to the total of what Canada does a year, which, as I said in the beginning, is 700 million. Now, they're still going to be burning for a while, so I'll make a guess and say roughly there's going to be 150% carbon produced in our atmosphere from these forest fires by the time they're all out in the fall of the year. Uh, 150 times what we would normally burn for fossil coal for the whole uh, fuels for the whole whole year. Now, now my question is, if we're if we're going to produce with these forest fires seven or eight hundred million tons, and Canada is tweaking our carbon output by roughly ten percent a year, around seven hundred million or six hundred ninety million or six hundred eighty million tons a year, that's ten to fifteen years of tweaking that we try to save with carbon tax and cutting back on fossil fuel, all this stuff, that's wiped out for the next 15 years by these wildfires. Now, what I want to say, what I want to say is all these things that we have, for example, here in Newfoundland, you see the, the taxes, you just heard talking the other day about a few cents, well, we're paying 30, 40, 56 cents on, 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 on a liter of fuel here in Newfoundland, the ferries are affected, all the goods coming affected, all the, all the ships and 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 eighteen wheelers are bring the groceries have gone up in price. Uh, the hotels have gone up in three hundred dollars uh, a room. There's very little tourism. I hear from my friends in St. John's now they're losing their business this year. There's very little tourism here, and one of the reasons it's eight thousand dollars now to come to Newfoundland for a week and go back across that ferry. All these things right. are affect, affect. You know what's happening? We're we're headed for something really major financially. Besides the 5% a year inflation. I'll just add one other thing. Let's say I've got $100,000 put aside for my future. Well, in the past three or four years, I've lost 15% just by the money sitting there. So now I can only buy equivalent of 85000 What a year, two or three years ago was 100000 All this stuff it's just, it's just, it, it's a nightmare what's happening. Sure, but I mean, you know, losing money on the market is, doesn't even factor in that our purchasing power has gone way down. And annualized inflation now, the last numbers we saw were 3.4%. We're getting close. And hopefully that means the Bank of Canada will knock it off with any more rate hikes. But I'm just trying to focus in on the carbon tax implication and or carbon emissions from forest fires. Because the atmosphere, of course, has no idea where the carbon came from. Like it could be a forest fire or it could be a, a highway tractor trailer so the, the atmosphere doesn't really know but when tom made some of those comments during that next break i had a look just to see uh, if i could get some more numbers for my own knowledge and to confirm what people say on the show in 2021 the wildfires had an uh, estimated carbon footprint of 270 million tons it was the biggest source of greenhouse gases in 2021 the equivalent will be uh, the same amount of emissions emitted by 60 million cars over the course of an entire year so obviously this is a problem now, carbon emissions from sources like agriculture, transportation, there's, that's one thing. But controlling carbon emissions from forest fires is a completely different conversation. Is it, Phil? 
Well, well, yes, it is. You're absolutely right. Now, I didn't hear the gentleman earlier. Just I've been thinking. Oh, okay. But what, I, what I'm trying to say is that, okay, we're trying to cut back on the carbon emissions. And Now, listen, let me just say this. I'm not disputing that uh, man is causing so-and-so, but it cannot be done in 5, 10, 20 years by windmills and solar panels. You'd have to cover the earth. It's not going to happen. Over a 50-year period, you can do it. And let me tell you why, Patty. Listen, our society, since the Industrial Revolution, has been based on modern technology. We live because of modern technology. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean all the vehicles and cars and trucks and planes and boats and the fossil fuel, all that's efficient, bringing us food, looking at building materials, medicines, all these things that come from fossil fuel development. We, we, we're into that for 150 years. You can't just shut that off. And let me tell you why. Years ago when I was doing quantum theory at the university, I became friends with one of the greatest quantum physicists uh, in the last century. His name was Dr. David Bohm. He was a friend of Einstein. And for some reason, he befriended me for two years before he died in 1990. And he asked me a question. He asked me a question. He said, Bill, he said, how many people can the planet support without modern technology? Now, modern technology has been based on fossil fuels. I mean, you look at everything that happens, medicines, building materials, deficiencies of all our traveling and foods and everything, and we have eight and a half billion people on the planet because of modern technology. If you remove that modern technology, which is based on fossil fuels, a big part of it, Some you of know it. what's going to happen, Patty? There's going to be a c collapse of the societies of the world. Now, people listen to me think I'm nuts. I'm not nuts. We can only support this planet, 200 million people, without modern technology, which is based on fossil fuels. If you Depends remove that, talking about, though, right? we're headed for a tragedy. We're headed for a tragedy. Right now, you see, like down in Texas last year, they had trouble with the, with the electrical system. You see people starving over in Africa, etc., etc. All these things, prices going up, people can't afford it. But we're, we're in a mess. And, and, and to come back to the fossil fuels, that's part of uh, everything we produce in industry and cars and all the rest of it has been included. But, but uh, what's happening this year is equivalent to everything that we do naturally with industry. And it's wiping out the, the carbon tax and all the efforts we've been making, uh, tweaking the 10%. Oh, in the next 15 years, we uh, we can't even make up for the fire uh, firefighters that happened this year. Well, there's I mean, there's different issues regarding individual responsibility, things that individuals do versus commercial and industrial applications of which there has not been an adequate replacement for fossil fuels found yet. There's no question there, but you know. The issue regarding... Patty, again, okay. listen, there is a replacement for fossil fuels. There Only is, one. It's not solar. It's not windmills. It's nuclear. The only way you can you can replace the efficiency and the production that comes from, you know, the fuels, the high energy you get, is, is nuclear. You know, that's the only thing can do it. Yeah, and if we don't, we're in a mess. What, what, what's happening now, I mean, you see it all around us. Listen, there's friends of mine in St. John's and Water Street that have a business. I don't want to mention their name. They're going out of business. They're losing thousands of dollars a week. They don't have the tourism. There's, there's a nightmare what's happening. But there's different end-use applications for different sources of power, right? You, you might get one need that could be possibly uh, settled or solved with nuclear power, another that could absolutely be settled or solved with solar or wind or tidal or whatever, because not every ounce of energy produced is created equally, nor is it created with the exact same end usage in mind or a possible end usage in mind. So I, I get the nuclear conversation. People are afraid of it for some of the issues, yeah. whether it be in Chernobyl or three 
Mile Island and stuff. When you in know, fact, it's, it's proven to be very safe over the years. Anyway, it's a big topic, and you can imagine if you wouldn't retire in just you know five minutes here. But I initially this wildfire, what it's doing, and we're trying to save the carbon footprint and all this. Well, the next fifteen years of what we're going to save by tweaking it by ten percent has just been wiped out by these wildfires, which are still going. That's the point I'm making. And they're upping the prices on fuel and gas, and our, everything is just everything is in a mess. You know, I mean, it's very sad for me to say I worked all my life as a doctor, and you know, retired and got a few dollars. I see it disappearing in front of me, and when we go buy food, we go get gas. I mean, uh, what, what do people do living on a senior a check of a thousand or twelve hundred dollars a month? I mean, this this is this is tragedy. What's happening, Patty, to our society I, and the federal government? Is at the heart of it. That's my opinion. I appreciate the time, Phil. Okay, Pat. Thank you. Bye bye. God bless. Uh, All right, let's take a break. Uh, Harold, you're next. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Uh, Line number two, Dave. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Harold. You're on the air. Yes, good morning. Morning to you. Uh, yes, uh, I was uh, in regards to the food bank. Uh, uh-huh. The guy was on there. Yep. Yeah, uh, me and my wife used it recently, and we're, we're the same. Uh, we use two different food banks, and we're the same with the out-of-date stuff, lots of out-of-date stuff. And then they turn around and tell you you only get once a month for a food bank then you can't come back until the, the month is up to get some more and what he gives you is, is uh, the only thing they don't think he gives you is that's not even good to eat yeah, I mean, we're trying to reach out to a couple of different food banks to talk about, you know, what they give out and what attention they pay to best before dates and that kind of stuff. And I suppose the once a month is simply because they cannot handle individuals or families any more frequently than that because of the amount of food that they actually have on the shelves, I guess. I understand that, but they can't handle it. But there's not, there's not much good giving people something that they can't eat. I get it. Totally I know, understand. I know, I know we got to get it, but... Just right now, we live off thousand dollars a month, and then that we got to use a food bank. But if we're going to go to the food bank and get something that we got to throw out. And then I talked to uh, one place we get it. I didn't talk to the lady about it, but the other place I get it, I talked to the guy about it, and he told me that a government guy comes there and says to him that he got to give it to us. A government guy comes and checks out the food, and he told us he got he got to give that out. He can't throw it out. He got to give it to us. I said to him, I said, you tell him, you tell that, you tell him, uh, you tell me, you you call me when that government guy comes, and I'll shove that food down his throat. Oh. I will try to speak directly to food bank operators on this particular issue that I'd never heard anyone say that uh, the volunteer at a food bank is mandated by their managers or the operators to give it out regardless if the client wants it or not. I don't know how that works, but I can uh, put I that. Talked to the guy. I talked to the guy and I said to him, I said, listen, I said, I, don't want, I, said, I know what you're giving me. Give me two or three bags of stuff. I said, I appreciate it, but listen, I said, I'm not taking stuff to, uh, out of date. I said, you better check the out of date stuff. I'm not giving it, I'm not taking it. He said, I got to give it to you. He said, a government guy comes there once a month, checks the stuff out, and he, and he, and he, and he says, so you, you got to give it to you. I said, what's the government guy's name? He said, I can't give you that. 
and nor do I know what department that government person would be representing. Maybe well, it was, in, it was in Marystown. So it was Marystown Food Bank. Yeah, but is it someone from the city council or town council? Is it someone from the province? Like, I don't know. That's the no, question. No, he wouldn't tell me. So he couldn't tell me that who, who the guy was that comes checks out. He says, but it's a government guy that comes check the food out there. And he said that he, that he told me, the guy, because I told the old guy off. I said, listen, buddy. I said, you can't, I said, you give me two or three bags of stuff. But you cannot give me two or three bags of stuff. There's no good to eat. I said, you're going to give it to me? I just, I'm not going to bring it back to you. I'm going to throw it out. So, and then stuff, some stuff that they freeze, and it says right on you read you read the stuff. It says right on, do not freeze. They give it to you. They think oh, like uh, yogurt stuff like that, and and then they freeze it. And what? How long do they have it frozen for? Two, three months or a month? And then they give it to you. Then you got it on top. It's not fit to eat. It's, you, we opened up fruit last time, a bit of fruit, and it was and it was, and it was black, it turned black. You go buy kiss. You go buy the same kind of fruit. It's not black. I've, I'll do the follow-up the best I can. I'm not familiar with what happens inside the food banks necessarily. So, mm-hmm. But the questions that you've posed and that the previous caller did, I will add that to my list, and I'll see what we can find out on your behalf. How's that? Okay. Thank you. Appreciate the time, Harold. Take care. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Let's go. Line number one. Say good morning to the NDP member of the House of Assembly, elected in and serving the folks of the Torngat Mountains. That's Leela Evans. Good morning, Leela. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. Welcome to the show. Yes, welcome. Uh, thank you. <laughs> you know, we talk about the price of groceries and whether or not we need to do better by municipalities with backyard farming and homesteading, but it's also country food. And now a disturbing story coming from your neck of the woods regarding uh, wild eggs that have been tainted. What happened? Well, Patty, uh, back in 2020, um, in summer, there was a huge spill in in the harbor of Postville. And it wasn't just a harbor that was impacted. Uh, right adjacent to Postville is English River, a salmon spawning river. And um, and also a uh, huge freshwater uh, ecosystem that feeds in into the bay. Uh, we call it Tree Rapids. So it was a huge area that was impacted. And the residents was there to sort of bear witness uh, to, this, to this spill of, uh, of fuel. And... Uh, you know, and uh, it was such a strong smell on the beach of the community of Coastal that people had to close their windows. Um, even up uh, one of the farthest buildings from the community is the school. And uh, the teacher said they stepped out on the steps of the school and they could smell the, they could smell the fumes from, from this spill that was on the surface. People took pictures, very, very concerned uh, about this. And as a result, what's the real-life implications now with some of these uh, stories regarding the tainted eggs and recommendations about intake and how many you could or should be eating before you make yourself sick? Well, the, the, you know, it's just I- initial studies. Uh, New National government um, got a research team together and uh, collected the eggs, and uh, they're publishing the results now. So for the results that's coming out as from the work that they've done in uh, 2020, and uh, they've also did some work in 2022. But uh, what's alarming for the people, and, and Patty, one of, one of the things we've sort of uh, always accepted was that we lived in an area that was considered by the outside world as pristine. Our environment wasn't touched by, uh, you know, um, the, the pollution and the contamination. And and to see now recommendations come out 
um, you know, advising people to to restrict the uh, consumption of the wild the wild eggs, uh, you know, um, is is alarming to the point where I'll I'll tell you now for the community of Postville, uh, the great black uh, back gull. Um, those eggs, um, they're recommending that a child would only eat one and a half egg per month. So that's that's a bit alarming. And also we look at the, the studies as well. So is the great black, uh, black back gull, the eider and the pigeon were the, um, the samples that they took. But more alarming is the pigeon, which is a, a, a bird that lives in the water, that feeds in the water, you know, so it's, it's it's, it's very uh, the eggs are very healthy omega-3 iron uh, you know all the essentials a pigeon egg and that's a gullimut for Newfoundlanders who are listening out there the the, the, the gullimut the little the little bird um, 0.1 of an egg per month 0.1 not one egg month you know so this is having a, like huge impacts to uh, our access to country foods it's having huge impacts to our practices of harvesting from the land and the sea, you know, that sustains us. And also it's, it's impacting people's, um, I guess, perceptions and they're, they're really even creating a lot of stress, which would impact our, our mental and um, psychological health. But, Patty, the one thing I, I want to say, though, is that, like, the contamination, that we're, the level that we're seeing right now is not acute. You know, so um, they're they're just advising people to uh, not consume too many eggs. There shouldn't be any real acute um, effects on on the people, uh, as long as they're mindful of their consumption. But what's really alarming to me and and the people in my district is where does the contamination come from? The the people did not con- um, generate this con- con- um, contamination. You know of of the oil, so that's what's really alarming for us. What's it meant for char? Now there's um, no native government. You know, um, there's work with the um, with the, with with the feds, the informal um, department there uh, on the federal level, and they're also starting to ch- test char. Um, they're, they've sampled uh, last year, 2022, and it's. Uh, they haven't released those findings to to the public, but it indicated that more testing needs to be done. And uh, but right now, it's not raising the same levels of, of concerns. Now, Patty, I, I'm I'm a biologist by profession, so I would automatically assume that the the contamination of char wouldn't be as great um, as as we see in the eggs, especially right away. Now, uh, over an extended period of time, being exposed to contamination, char would actually uh, build build up into char as well. We call that bioaccumulation, right? Mm -hmm. So is Health Canada directly involved, or has it simply been the Nanatsiva government and the Department of Environment and Climate Change? Well, it's my understanding that uh, it's it's Nanatsiva government is leading the charge on this um, this research, you know, they, they appear to be taking this really seriously um, because it's about it's impacting the people in my district, the Inu and Inuit, but especially in the areas that conta- that's the contamination has been detected, that's impacting our harvesting of food, is um, you know, in the uh, Inuit region. So 
um, they're taking it very serious because it's impacting access to food. And, and, and Patty, you, you hear me a lot, you know, in the House of Assembly and, and in the media and on social media talking about the huge prices uh, of food that's really, really impacting our access to food. And I would always say, you know, we rely heavily, we still rely heavily on the wild foods, the country foods, as people would call it. You know, like whether it's eggs, capelin, uh, char, um, um, waterfowl, the, the ducks and the geese uh, in the winter, you know, the partridges, the seals, all those, all that food is still a major part of our diet. And the thing that really bothers me, and I said this about muskrat falls, this is the thing that really, you know, one, one of the driving forces um, that helped me get into politics um, was... With Mushrat Falls, the contamination of the marine system and the freshwater systems of, of the Lake Melville region, right? When, when we look around the world, we see all these countries, these countries now trying to restore the ecosystems back uh, to, to what it was or to, to try to uh, reduce contamination. And we in Labrador live in an area that that has not been harmed, has not been seriously compacted. So, like, you, to totally just disregard this process of, of uh, hydroelectricity and damming and generating all this methylmercury without trying to mitigate it. And now in, in my backyard, in the communities that, that really rely on this food, and it's not only about access to food, it's about our culture and it's about our mental health, uh, the access to food and and now we're seeing impacts from others from outside our region impacting our access to food it's, it's really unsettling from from every level now that you mentioned muskrat falls and the unique uh, estuary that is lake melville what do you know about the most recent water monitoring regarding methylmercury because the last time that i spoke to a member from your area in, in that case it was perry trimper is that the ongoing monitoring had not shown what was predicted to be the uptick and the accumulative effect of methylmercury downstream what's the most recent data showing well P- P- um, petty the, the problem with water just looking at water it's foolhardy because methylmercury, uh, yes, it, uh, it, 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 it accumulates in the water, but it, it, it's exponential accumulation in the food chain from the organisms and the animals and uh, the fish that actually consume the, 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 consumes the, uh, the, um, the food in the water. I understand. So it, yeah. So, so like it says, really what we, we should be doing now is publishing the results from, from animals and, and from fish. Right, but if you look at Postville and you compare Postville to Lake Melville regions, very very similar. Just adjacent to Postville is a major salmon stream, a major salmon uh, um, um, ecosystem, and then you look, um, you know, that that's basically um, to the to one side of the community of Postville, to the other side of the community of Postville is this huge freshwater feeder. Of, of what we call tree rapids that has all these ponds and rivers that feeds, um, you know, um, all this, um, uh, the, 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 whole, the whole bay is actually, uh, you know, usually a pristine uh, environment that has, like, so many fish species, uh, seals, um, salmon, char, uh, waterfowl, like the eider, the, uh, the, um, 
the, the gullimots and the, uh, the pigeons, all, all this, all this, and and the people of Postville rely on that to to eat, and also not only Postville but the community of Post Macovic, um, which is out, uh, you know, out at the end of the bay around the, around the Cape um, Cape Macovic. So we we have to be concerned, and and my problem with it is we have to sort of like take a step back and say. Where's the contaminants coming from, and why is this allowed to happen? Right, we should be doing everything. Canada and the provincial government should be doing everything it can to protect the natural environment, uh, 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 protect the, these natural food sources. But we've seen now, like I said, I, I brought up Mushrat Falls because Mushrat Falls is indicative to the way the provincial government treats us. Right, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. You were willing to let the uh, the methylmercury. Um, go without any um, um, mitigation there in in terms of the soil and the vegetation, and that was fine. And the and the reason why I say that that was fine to them because the the, the failure to mitigate for mush uh, for mushrat falls methylmercury poisoning of our of our food chains was either through incompetence where they failed to get the permit or they actually intentionally allowed that permit not to be secured so that they wouldn't have to do the work. And 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 this is what we're looking at, and this is what we're facing for Labrador, and the North people in North Coast. We cannot afford to let this go. We can't afford to lose our access to safe, secure, healthy natural foods, because we can't rely on being able to go down to the store and, and buy healthy foods. Because first off, a lot of times it's not available. We've seen with this Hamadik uh, W, the the marine freight boat being hung up. Uh, due to ice, when a normal boat with a normal hull would have been able to 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 uh, to travel through that. Um, now we're, we're we're looking at access to food, but also the cost. The cost is pricing healthy foods out of the reach of a lot of people. And another thing that's impacting us too is the PUB is actually doing this thing with the gas where we're paying a lot more. Normally we'd pay about thirty cents more than people in St. John's a liter for gasoline, so be able to go off hunting and fishing. And now we saw over the winter when they froze it, they froze it at more like 50 cents more a liter. And so that's really, really d- disturbing for us is because we're being impacted on every way. And that's why I said uh, I said last week, it's a form it's a form of racism. It's a form of discrimination. And we know that genocide is a practice. It's not a practice of the past. It's a form to erode our communities, uh, uh, you know, to, 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 to ensure that our communities shrink as opposed to expand. When you look at our, our, our birth populations, our birth rates, we are expanding communities on the north coast of Labrador, and we are usually healthy communities, right? Leela, I appreciate the time this morning. Because of the time on the clock, we'll have to say goodbye, but thanks for making time for us. And I just want to add one more thing, Patty, is I, I really am not going to let this go. I'm, I'm not. And I, you know, I've seen Nunasi would step up. Nunasi government is taking this really serious. Uh, they're looking out to be after the best interests of their, their people, and they will be following up with this, and they're going to be working with their people, but also they're going to be holding others to account as well. Thanks, Leela. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Evans. She's the NDP member for Torngat Mountains. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. I do want to give short shrift to the two callers. So just quickly, and still lots of questions floating around about what they're calling the grocery rebate. So it's pretty basic, to, though, to be honest, even though it might be confusing in some corners, because people, I think, conflate what was going to be the quarterly rebate regarding the carbon tax implications, the climate incentive, something or other they call it, that's absolutely based on a family income. But this one on the grocery rebate, if you qualify for GST, HST rebate, 
because you file your taxes and you qualify for it, you automatically get the grocery rebate. So there's no more work to be done. There is some confusion about how they broke down how much per per person based on their life circumstance. So if you've got your taxes filed and because of your 2022 earnings, you qualify for GST, you automatically get it. So here's some of the confusion that people, I think, rightfully bring up as to how this was calculated. If you're single and you have no children, you're going to get an additional $234 tomorrow. If you have direct deposit with the government, it'll show up in your bank account tomorrow. If not, the check will be mailed by CRA tomorrow. With one child, $387. With two children, $467. With three children, $548. If you have four children and you're single, $628. If you're married or in a common law relationship. No children, $306. With one child, 387 With two children, 467 And with three children, 548 Four children, the same, 628 So a little variance there, you know, certainly based on the fact that there's more than one person in the home. So that's the basics. Even if you got your GST, HST credit as a, wow, power just went out, as a lump sum in July last year, you'll still get the grocery rebate. So that's the basic of how that works. So, and the lights just came back on. Okay. So uh, hopefully that clears up the uh, issue for folks who are still sending emails because, you know, I suppose it might seem pretty basic but there's lots of different policies and pockets of money that does provide a bit of confusion for folks and you know we had a couple of calls based on some confusing confusing issues that people are broaching and dealing with and we're happy enough to take them on and again just that friendly reminder it doesn't matter if I brought it up or you've heard someone else on the show talk about it if it's an issue important enough for you that it's given you some consternation or some frustration or something you want to tell us that's a bit of good news you can do exactly that right after this news break don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Thomas. You're on the air. Hello there. Hello. Second time calling. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I'll get to it fairly fast. But uh, first time I called uh, uh, was when the Biotics called for being brought back from uh, Britain, I think, in Scotland somewhere. Okay. And they were going to put him in a museum, and I just had to call on that one. But anyway, uh, last Wednesday, Wednesday past, we did the dinner theater in Pollingate. And I just had to call in. I mean, these, these people are just fantastic. And uh, the, the the unique thing about it is that you uh, you go in, you they seat you in a beautiful new theater, uh, and uh, you're served uh, a really nice dinner. And uh, of course, they clean up after, and they seat you for the show. And the same people who did all this work go up on stage and entertain you. <laughs> Man, I'm telling you. I was blown away. I could not, I couldn't, <laughs> you know, I've never been anywhere where this was done before. From scraping off the plates to snapping the floor and then to get up and, and, and the, the talent was just unreal. What kind of show did they put off? Well, it's pretty well all original, uh, uh, traditional, I should say, okay. uh, music, and some skits for local, you know, traditional type skits. 
but uh, uh, mostly music, some skits, and uh, they're all local. I mean, local, local. Live in the area. I've always lived near most of them, I think. And uh, just, <laughs> I'm just putting this out because I think people need to go and see this because I can talk about it all day, but it's just not going to do it justice. You need to go and you need to see this. Your own people doing your own thing. <laughs> and uh, I've been across Canada. I've been I've been a lot of places. I'm 81 years old. I've been in the forces. I've been all over Newfoundland. But uh, I can't think of anything that would would be much better than this one. Well, it sounds so like I you had a great time. Oh, we did have a great time. And I, I'd just like for people to, you know, there's a little bit out of the way. We'd done, a, I think it was over 1,000 kilometers on this trip. We were gone six days. And uh, I think local people are, we need, to, we need to support these people, right? Because what they're doing is just unreal. It just goes beyond, you know? It reminds me. Are, <clears throat> yeah, go ahead. Probably a different scale, but I'm pl- really pleased to hear that they're as talented as you're telling us they are. There's a diner on Broadway called Stardust, the Stardust Diner, where all of the waiters and waitresses are aspiring Broadway performers. And they've actually yeah. graduated people from being a waiter at the Stardust Diner to actually being on stage in a Broadway musical. So that's what it re- reminded me of right away. I've heard of it. Yeah. I've literally never been there. But the unique thing about these people that don't aspire, aspire to be anything but who they are. Terrific. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, who they are is some, something, it's exceptional. And I think we need to support our own a little bit more than we do, probably, because uh, they deserve it. And uh, second thing, I have a, a camper van here in Ireland, which was built in uh, in Bishop Falls some years ago. She's still in good shape, working well. And I lost a small panel off the side of her. There's a storage compartment there. And I lost it up in that particular area. Two good arm, twilling gate. There's a lot of small communities there that we visit. And I didn't notice it till the end of the day. And then in order to find it, I had to backtrack all these little side roads and that. So I decided to go this route. And hopefully someone found it. Because there's no other way I'm going to get it. Because these are not built anymore, right? And so So describe the part that you lost uh, one more time. The part is, uh, it's a small side panel. There's a a storage compartment on the side of her. Okay. And it's about four by four, roughly. And it's hinged. Well, the hinges obviously must have broke, and uh, it came off. And it's white fiberglass. And uh, you wouldn't be able to use it for anything else because it's, uh, it's fitted to the vehicle, right? So if anyone, I've always, already talked to the dinner theater, and they're going to do what they can to help me out. And uh, we'll find a way to get it if someone has it, right? So thought maybe this would be a good way to go. Sure, and I mean it's no use to anyone else. So if someone picked it up, hopefully it's they can make sure, sure it's it no to use you. to. I'm sure some uh, some of these Newfoundlanders out around the bay will find a use for it. <laughs> oh, fair enough. I, I should have thought that through a little further. <laughs> yeah. Before I let you because, go, Thomas. Uh, 
uh, the, ingen- in- the ingenuity of Newfoundland is just mind- mind-boggling, you know, when it comes to making use of stuff. Certainly for many. I know my father was like that. Uh, me, not yeah. maybe so much. Uh, Thomas, before I let you go, so we've had a caller say that, you know, tourism is down. Even though my friends in the uh, hospitality industry say it's looking pretty good so far this year, it must have been booming with tourists down Twillingate. It's booming, and I'll tell you why it's booming, because they're... They got their, I shouldn't say this for the four-letter word online, but they got their stuff together, right? They got it together. They got the icebergs this year, the biggest ones I've ever seen. I've been up to, I've been all over this province twice. I made it my my goal to to know my province because I, I, when my kids were growing up 40 years ago, 45 years ago, we traveled with a tent and a car. And often I'd overhear conversations from people from away asking locals about the province, and they didn't know. And it was kind of embarrassing. <laughs> you didn't know your own province, so I made it a point to travel the province, and this is, I've done it twice now in two different camper vans and a fifth wheel. And uh, I, I'm not an expert, but I do have a pretty good idea of what, what we're about. So. That's that's my story. And it's a good way to be. I mean, I've done my best to travel the bulk of the province, and I've been just about everywhere, certainly been up and down all the coasts and seen a lot of the smaller communities that I probably never would have had I not made a concerted effort. But there's far too few people have taken it upon themselves. I mean, there was a lot of staycationing, I would think, for maybe the first time for a lot of folks when pandemic travel restrictions were what they were. But it's a brilliant place. It absolutely is incredible to some of the... Hidden yeah. treasures and, are and there to be found. I know the fir- first one I started, you, you went from point A to point B, and all these little side roads, you didn't bother with them because you say, oh, it's just another place like where I came from. But that's not the case in a lot of cases. I mean, they're all unique, right? They all, there's something little different about them all. So you think you're going to burn a drop of gas and the price of gas. I just burned over $350, $400 worth of gas in six days. But it's worth every penny. I appreciate the time. I'm glad you enjoyed your travels, especially the uh, dinner theater there in Twillingate. And if anyone picked oh, up yeah, Thomas's yeah. cover for his uh, his travel trailer for that little compartment, if you got it, he'd love to have it back. And, and uh, another little point I try to make: you sure. go into this beautiful new theater, beautiful surroundings, serve well, top-notch meal, and a two-hour top-notch show for less than 50 bucks. Can't beat that. <laughs> Way to go. Take care, buddy. Appreciate the call. All the yeah. best. All right, bye-bye. Thomas had a good time traipsing around. And it is, of course, it's very helpful if people spend some of their vacation dollars here in the province. But as we've heard from Hospitality in Newfoundland many, many times, is the visitors from elsewhere, the guesstimate is that they spend about three times more than we spend as locals for some obvious reasons, I was supposed. All right, and if, if has anyone been to the new theater in Cowhead? Whether it be for the Gross Morn Theater Festival or otherwise, but apparently that is just incredible. So if you've got a review you would like to offer on that, I'd like to know more about it. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Ryan's here to talk about a donation to the gathering place. Then we're going to talk about the Oil to Electric Incentive Program. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Ryan, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me on the air. No problem. I just wanted to uh, call in to talk about a uh, donation or a 
a family enterprise, Kelly and Caden Fisheries Inc. Just uh, just made it a gathering place to uh, to help the homeless and uh, the people that need it most here in our in our community. And uh, basically, most people want to uh, keep their business plan uh, to to themselves, but I actually want to uh, want to promote it to hopefully get other people to uh, to jump on board and. Uh, join in with us because it will help out it'll help out more the people that need it in our in our communities and hopefully take away some of the rules that uh, that divide us as fishing families as society as people it's uh, so basically what we don't patty it's uh, we sold a portion of our crab this year locally at uh, at a higher, higher margin than we would have to the to the ASP so what we've done is we took uh, I sold my crab basically to my to to, to my daughter or through my through my daughter at uh, three dollars a pound, and I let her sell sell it resell it for me at six dollars a pound. So I was capitalized and I was making eighty cents more on my crab, and uh, my daughter was making three dollars more for her investment into uh, into a new four wheeler she wanted to have because I wanted to teach her to instill in her that you need to uh, you, you should you should work. For, for what you for what you want to, to get away from the feeling of entitlement, basically. So what we done with the uh, with the eighty cents I took on it, I took on the uh, I took on the price of crab. I re I reinvested in the fuel for my boat, and uh, we had a, uh, a free tour out of the uh, out of out of the kegger in front of uh, Jack Astor's there last week, and all proceeds went to uh, went to the gathering place. So basically. Our fishing enterprise. We we met a bunch of new lifeline friends, and we also put put uh, a roof over people's table and and food under food under plates for a couple of days. It's not a I know it's not a significant difference, but every uh, every small boy helps, and every wave starts with a ripple, basically. Absolutely. You know, again, the first thing that pops on my mind when we have conversations, whether it be about food bank donations or people who are donating to the gathering place, is just the demand on those types of organizations. You know, it's grown so quickly and no end in sight because things aren't exactly getting easier around here. No, Patty, that, that's 100%. That's 100% right. And, uh, I mean, I've, uh, I was basically, I'm going to call it campaign, and I'm water free, and I was dressed as a fisherman. I wasn't dressed as a person that gets paid to protect a $14 million asset on the, on the east coast of Canada. And I think a lot of people just automatically think when you're approaching them that you are, you're looking for something off them, and that's not a knock against people. That's, uh, that's, how, that's how we're born. We're born as hunters and gatherers, basically, and uh, we, we lean towards people that can put food on our table, and that's, uh, that's, that's built in us and spilled in us in that. Uh, in nature, so I don't think it's a knock against society or people. Everyone wants to help. Everyone wants to help charity, and help, everyone wants to help the poor. But sometimes I think we're our own worst enemies because in uh, situations like this, like I'm here in Pity Harbor, and uh, as you know, I'm a diversified fisherman. I'm the byproduct of the of Tags program, but unfortunately, right now, I have to. Uh, I have to. Uh, I don't have to. They give me an option to quit my job. My fishing season was three days long. So do you want me to? Uh, basically make 75% of my income from the fishery for uh, for the rest of the summer for five months. So they're not they're not making me go on unemployment, but they're leaving me with that with that as one of my only options. And basically I have a seven thousand dollar if I if I follow status quo and follow in line with the rest of the industry here and I don't capitalize on our investment. I have a uh, I have a I have a twenty thousand pound quota that I caught in three days without trip limits that will be worth forty four thousand dollars. And to put that in perspective, I have eight thousand dollars worth of insurance I pay on my boat. So, if uh, if we fall in line with status quo and we're not we're not willing to adapt to change, 
well, we're basically going to come extinct here in another couple of years unless we, uh, we amend some of the rules because basically everyone in the apprenticeship program and everyone in a fishing boat is allowed to, uh, allowed to work full-time, all full-time plumbing outside of fishery since uh, 2020. Well, well, as we're in there, we got to become unemployed in order to become eligible to advance. So it's a, it's counterintuitive, but what it is is because people people developed strong biases before 1997, and fellows like myself and John Norman, we've been trained to overcome biases, anchor biases, information biases, and adapt and adjust the sales basically, and uh, move forward. Move forward. So it's not a knock against these people; is they've developed strong biases, and uh, 75% for industries over 55. So. It's hard to teach an old dog new tricks, basically, but we need the young people to adapt and to adapt and change. And our way of doing it is to help charity. So basically, on a twenty thousand pound quota, we will we will put forty thousand dollars into charity and still come out twenty thousand dollars ahead if we sell it local. And that will prompt competitive in, competitiveness in the industry. And hopefully, instead of me, I I haven't got Tom Patty to be uh, to be peddling my crap, basically. So it would be a lot easier if we had a plan issued a processing license there. We got Perilous Fish, thanks to us, that are 20, uh, 27 years, just been a middleman trucking company. And if they were peddling my crab for me, they go our, their, their employees could be getting paid a competitive wage, and it puts competitive back in our industry. Because the hard reality is, everyone in the industry, we're all good people, and it's just even with the with the ASB and with Loader, they're better business men than we are. And that's the hard reality. They feed us crumbs, and we go back, we go back for more each and every year. And if we stay status quo, we will continue to do the same thing. So basically, this right here for me, this is a way to uh, this is a way to step outside the box and open-minded thinking, and hopefully get more people uh, open up the eyes of more people because we're so kind-hearted. When you come to war from Pity Harbor, there's a good chance every fisherman you talk to is going to want to give you some crab, is going to want to give you some codfish. But in reality, we are the we are the problem. We're not the solution when we do that. Because these tours, just like when I go to the keg or you go to the keg, we not only pay competitive prices, we leave a tip for the service. So it's a, it's the same. It's, it's the same when it comes to the fishing industry. Sometimes our our kindness is our killer, basically. Sometimes it can be, and I mean, adapting is important, but the rules have to make sense to keep the industry viable. When we talk about average age of the skipper, average age of the crew, average age of the plant worker, it's not necessarily set up for a long-term viability. Uh, Ryan, appreciate the time, and congratulations on the donation. Appreciate it, Patty. Appreciate you having me in there. Uh, uh, just one, one quick thing I'm going to okay. add there before I go. As always, Patty, you know, don't get rid of me that easy because the only thing I like more than, I like more than fishing is talking about fishing. So uh, when a lot of people, when they look at this chopper flying over the seal herds for uh, five minutes looking at millions of seals, they see an, over, an overstocked seal population. Well, what I see when I look at it, I see the food chain, the food chain that supports it. So in DFO science, and this is not a knock against DFO science, they go out and drop a pot or drop a net where probably... We'll, we, we never would have, or where we would have to move and we would have to fish around the frog fish. But if the food chain didn't support those seals, the seals wouldn't be there. So t- that tells me that we have an abundance of resources. No argument there, I don't think. I appreciate the call, Ryan. I'm going to get to another caller here this morning. Thanks, Patty. Have a good day. Same to you. All the best. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right, we'll at least start this conversation when we say good morning to the Liberal member for, I try to get this right, Virginia Waters, Pleasantville. The Minister of Environment and Climate Change is Bernie Davis. Good morning, Minister Davis. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Very well. How about you? 
Good, good. Dried off a little bit from the walk into the office this morning. It was uh, teeming, as they say, uh, when I walked in, but I think uh, it's settled down after now looking out my window. Yeah, I saw a bit of flooding in different parts of the province, and it's not just about how much rain, it's how quickly how much rain falls. So hopefully there wasn't too much more of that like I saw on Sally's Cove this morning. Uh, before we get into some of the nuts and bolts here, inside some of the other programs put forward by government, was you know there was net income net household income and stuff for whether or not people would be deemed eligible for a variety of different supports whether it be pandemic supports or otherwise inside this oil to electric incentive program is it available to different levels based on the technology chosen is it available to every single one of the 40,000 households Yes, it's available to every single person uh, that would be deemed eligible based on uh, the criteria of, of uh, 1,000 litres of oil. They would have to have that as their primary source that they're removing and, and moving into uh, changing to a, an electric furnace or other technology like mini or multi-splits, um, heat pumps or, or otherwise. Yeah. So the big difference on this one is, unlike some other programs in the past, you needed some upfront cash. Not everyone has it and then wait for the rebate. In this case, people can bill the uh, take charge, whether it be Hydro and the partnership with Newfoundland Power directly, which I think is helpful. The one question I also have in addition to how this works is, a lot of the other programs and policies have indeed been stackable. Is this one stackable with other programs for incentives that are out there? Yes, Patty. So we partnered with the federal government on this one. So it's a partnership between uh, Natural Resources Canada and uh, Environment Climate Change Canada. So we've we've put those two programs together to allow us to hit every income bracket, uh, uh, ranging from anywhere between five thousand to seventeen thousand, depending on income level as well as the technology they chose. Uh, so there is a, a far-reaching ability to get that. And there's, as you said earlier, forty thousand households, a little over forty thousand households that could be. Uh, applying for this and we expect over the next four years to transition uh, over 10,000 uh, homes off of oil into the electric. Uh, this program is just over $157 million uh, between the two levels of government. Okay, so how did you come up with numbers that people would be eligible for based on different technologies? Is it about cost recovery models or how exactly was the differentia differentiation uh, reached? So that was uh, great work done by the staff in our department as well as uh, working with those two other levels. The federal government has uh, income level thresholds that they use, and that's the income level thresholds we're using to determine uh, you know, that, that portion of it. But the technology is an important piece. So if you're choosing to uh, use something that's um, more efficient, like uh, a heat pump directly versus a mini split, which is more efficient than, say, baseboard heating, um, those are the things that would get you more uh, uh, revenue or more uh, grant or, or sorry rebate uh, for your purchase and one of the and you're right um, one of the other uh, barriers that we had to the program was initially when we did this uh, we did this uh, last year and we had some 1715 homes done the year prior to that was only 100 homes so it's moved up quite substantially and one of the key barriers that we've seen was the upfront cost so we've taken that barrier away by uh, allowing the uh, billing of of the uh, contractor to uh, to be billed uh, directly from us. Okay. So uh, inside the $157 million, what's the breakdown between the province and the feds? 
Uh, roughly 50-50. Uh, we're, we're a little on, a little over on, on certain income levels and we're a little, pay a little more. And we would be under, the feds would pay a little more on some other income levels. So we would pay a little more and, uh, and make sure that we hit those thresholds and the technologies for individuals. It was just uh, based on which department we got the funding from. It's seamless for the people that are involved. Uh, they won't know the, the difference between who's funding what other than uh, it's roughly 50-50. Inside the whole envelope, lowering carbon emissions, and this will be attractive, you know, just based on email volume sent my way, people looking for links and information on this one because of the installer direct billing take charge. There's also going to be some that for whatever reason under the sun, whether it be the pot of money runs out or they simply choose to continue on with home heating fuel, they are now facing, as of probably the 6th of this month, 17 cents additional cost per litre on home heating oil. What's the conversation look like inside the cabinet room? Because the Premier can say that they're opposed to this and the implication of clean fuel regulations, Minister Cody, Minister Parsons and others, but still there's going to be people who will struggle. What's the conversation look like? Is it about removing HST? Is it about home heating subsidies? How does it sound? What does it look like? So all of those things are things that we, we've chatted about. Uh, first and foremost, uh, you've seen over the past number of months that we've had a consorted effort, uh, both myself and the Premier and others, uh, pushing back at uh, Minister Guibo, uh, asking him for more time. We had a made in Newfoundland approach that, that exempted home heating fuel as well as municipalities uh, for their operation. And those are things that are as simple as saying, uh, you know, anything from fire trucks to snow plows. Uh, now the municipalities have to play more uh, pay, pay carbon tax on that we negotiated out of that uh, agreement uh, when they first came into uh, fruition in the 2017-2018 area. Um, so those are things that we were completely opposed to and, and voiced our concerns with that uh, because we need more time to transition our homeowners. As you said, 40,000 plus homeowners in this province rely uh, on home heating fuel and we wanted to give ourselves some time to get that and we were very disappointed uh, with these um, decisions and we've been in constant, uh, you know, discussions with the Department uh, of uh, Environment Climate Change Canada and Minister Guibault in particular. I've had many conversations with myself about saying that, you know, this don't make any sense for the people that we all represent in this province and in Atlantic Canada in particular. We're more... Um, uh, negatively, uh, adversely affect, affected because we have uh, a higher pro pro uh, pro uh, propensity to have uh, fuel, uh, home heating fuel, uh, heat our homes primarily. So, you know, that's something that other parts of the country don't have as much of in, per, in uh, per capita basis as we do. Coming from a listener, this is a question for you. Why isn't there a rebate for someone to switch from baseboard heaters to heat pumps? Well, that's a very good question. That's something that we're obviously looking at as well. Our primary focus in this program with working with the federal government is reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And in turn, then, uh, the positive side of this, as, as we say, great for the environment, but also good for the economy uh, from the business perspective, uh, helping create jobs. But even then, uh, allowing individuals to save in their pocketbook, which is an important piece for us. Individuals can save anywhere between 15 to 60 percent of their uh, monthly heating bill uh, when they transition to one of these uh, some of these technologies. Obviously, more savings the the the, uh, the better the technology you utilize. Uh, but that's what we're encouraging people to do. I appreciate this morning at the Times Morning Minister. Thank you very much, Patty, and have a great summer now. You too. All the best. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. A little bit late for the news, but let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, uh, Brian wants to talk about the passing of Bill Marshall, which happened last week. And then Tom wants to talk about the program we just discussed with the minister. Don't go away. 
Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. Morning to you. Long time caller. Or long time listener, first time caller. Love that. I wish I had, I wish I had called before the minister was on talking about the oil to electric heat rebate. Because I got a quick question. Um, our daughter just recently bought her first home at the age of 19, incredibly. Wow. And uh, looking to switch over from oil. But everything we're reading on the rebate and forms, if you didn't purchase 1,000 liters of oil last year, you don't qualify. That's right. So uh, is there any way that you can do... We we bought from a family member, so I mean, can you use the oil receipts from last year? I wonder. It feels like you're getting penalized just because you know you're a first-time home buyer, and this is a program you can't avail of. I can get an answer to that. Toot sweet. No problem. I'll get the minister's office to give me an answer to that question before the show's over. Fantastic. Yeah, that's no problem. Thank you, Betty. No sweat at all. Uh, so if the minister and or staff in the Minister of Environment and Climate Change is listening now, what about someone who just purchased the home from a family member? The home still was heated by home heating oil last year, regardless who owns it. So does that mean that this person, this young 19-year-old, and bravo for being able to buy a home at the age of 19, I'm not even going to ask you how much support she got from family, but good for her. Uh, is that person eligible for this incentive program? If you're listening, please send me the answer right away if not i'll reach out to them during the break uh, uh, fantastic all i had she had zero support from family she did it all on her own how about that how did she uh, manage to scrimp and save the kind of money because the down payment is the problem for most it's not the cost of the mortgage payment it's the down payment requirement uh she went to right out of high school and did a trade at the college uh, lived at home with us while she did so and scrimped and saved until she was able to do it absolutely brilliant stuff so bravo to her and of course owning a home comes with a lot of upside but there's an awful lot of work that goes into it too uh, which I found out the hard way over the weekend again Tom I'll get that answer for you right away thanks buddy appreciate the time take care bye bye there you go just an industrious young lady put in the effort and the work right out of high school to be able to save for a down payment because for many that's the issue it's that whole uh, the way that the banks and the mortgage lenders evaluate your ability to pay and some of it is just a little bit too harsh but even then just the requirements of the down payment is ex- absolutely why some people continue to rent now some people rent because they want to rent and absolutely right you do whatever you see fit but it's a lot of potential homeowners are out there that aren't into a home because they can't come up with the down payment now there are some support programs especially federally for coming up with that money but anyway let's keep rolling so line number two brian you're on the air Good morning, Patty. How are you? Okay, this morning. How about you? Boy, those Blue Jays are doing bad, hey? Well, they're doing bad against teams from the American League East. I mean, to get popped by the Red Sox, who I really don't like, uh, was just brutal. A couple of those losses were awful. Home run off uh, Romano by Verdurgo, bad base running by Bachet, and I guess bad third base coach in the game before. It was hard to watch. One of the things I'm amazed at is this pitcher with Los Angeles. My God, he's pitching great, and he's hitting home runs like you wouldn't believe. Otani, one of the yeah. he's you know they call people generational uh, players. He's a all-time lifetime guy. He, I've, I've never seen a ball player quite like him. He's right there in home run leads in the majors. He's second in strikeouts 
it's just phenomenal. We're going to Toronto to visit my sister uh, near the end of this month. The Angels are in town, so hopefully I see Otani pitch and hit. It's like uh, when I used to play um, uh, literally baseball, you'd always have a pitcher who hit home runs, and that's how he reminds of a literally pitcher. Anyway, Paddy, I just want to mention Bill Marshall this morning. I'm sure he's buried by now. Um, I, when I was at university, I was banging around uh, university politics, going, going against some of the Rod Moores and Dave Rooney and that crowd. And uh, Ed Roberts approached me at the university in 1975 said that they were basically looking for a sacrificial lamb to go down to St. John's East and take on Bill Marshall. And he asked me if I'd do that. And he said, oh, you know, we we won't be able to do a whole lot for you. There's a lot to be done down there. And so I thought of an opportunity, so I, I took it. Now, I broke a tradition with my family. I was the first one about six or seven generations, we were always conservative. I ran liberal. And I didn't, <coughs> excuse me, I didn't beat Bill Marshall, obviously. I won one poll, and that was it. And my friends always made fun of me until, um, until uh, President Reagan, but Mandel, I'm on 49 states, and you say, hey, he's like you, he's a loser. But I learned so much from that experience in 1975. I met two important people. One was Bill Marshall, a lawyer, a tremendous intellect, and Ed Roberts, very kind, very bright and brilliant, and gave me lots of good advice. And I remember, especially Bill Marshall today, my dad had worked for him painting houses, and Bill always treated him well. And he treated me well in the campaign. One thing I want to say, in 75, when I went over to vote, and I actually saw my name in the ballot through a shock thing. I went over, and I, I went in and voted. My dad went in and voted. And when he came out in walks Bill Marshall. Did your dad vote for you? And, uh, well, and yeah. <clears throat> and Dad went over and shook his hand and said, you know, Bill, I voted for you for years, but I can't cast you my vote this time. And Bill shook his hand and said, you know, Mr. Clark, if you had voted for me, I'd be, I'd be disappointed. I know that's the kind of man he was. He made a great contribution in Newfoundland, more than I could ever do. He was a great minister. He was a very, very good uh, parliamentarian. I think it may have been Bill Marsh, I don't know, that was in the house tonight that Bill Small across the house and gave him or somebody else in the opposition a smack across the face. And that was a, a talking point for many, many days after that. So this morning to the Marshall family, I don't know any of them, uh, my sincere condolences. Your relation, Bill, gave a lot to Newfoundland. He loved Newfoundland. He was a fine example of what a politician should be. If more people were like Bill Marshall and Ed Roberts, you know, it would be a better House of Commons. It would be a better Congress. And we wouldn't have any Donald Trump running around. 
So that's what I want to say today, Patty. Of all the things I've lost in my day, the best experience I had was running against Bill Marshall. Thank you for letting me come on and, and reminisce a little bit. Appreciate the time, Brian. Thank you. Okay. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. Bill Marshall, dead at 87. Obviously had a major impact. Found at the law firm, which was Marshall, White, Ottenheimer, and Green. Big part of the Atlantic Accord. Of course, sat on the Court of Appeal for many, many years. Uh, let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Daryl, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. How are you doing today? Okay, you. Oh, I'm doing good. Thank you very much. Uh, Patty, what I'm calling about today, I'm, calling, I'm going to talk about the signage here in this province. And here in Gander, I'll give you a good example. When you leave Cooper Boulevard, go uh, into Gander Bay Road, going towards Gander Bay, Mosgrave Harbor, so forth, the sign that is there leading into that road is three-quarters of it is gone. Now, I know what's on there, like Mosgrave Harbor, Lums, and whatever, but three-quarters of that sign is gone. So if you got tourists coming here and whatever, you've got three-quarters of signs gone, and no markings there for, you know, your next community and so forth. So where's the government inspectors when it comes to the, doing the signage on the roads? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we hear people like I've got this one fellow who's actually a friend of mine, and he right. called about a sign, I believe it was somewhere in and around Petty Harbor or what have you. Uh, no, right. it's not. It was right there on the Outer Ring Road. That has been busted forever and a day. I mean, obviously, people are driving by, noticing it, letting the department know, and they just sit unrepaired for far too long. Like, I don't even understand what the holdup would be. Yeah, no, I don't understand, too. And I've noticed other signs in my travels, too, like they're faded away and uh, so forth. So now we're trying to promote tourism, whatever. And especially here in Gander, now you got to come from away, which uh, is all sold out for all summer. So if you get somebody visit the area, you might want to go to a small community or, or visit, whatever. But all of a sudden, there's no signs. You don't know where's what or whatever. But I think you should get innovative and have go with all digital like like you look at say for example a like gander if you depends what direction you're going takes in uh you know certain areas depends if you're going north south west or east or whatever the case may be why can't you have digital signs that you get all the communities on a digital board like let's be innovative and, and you know let's, let's modernize more and you know get rid of the wooden signs and have a digital uh have a digital uh, uh you know a board so, so when you drive, you see every community that, like, say, in Gander surrounding area that takes in, depending on the direction you're going. I think so. That's where we get start getting more innovative that way. And I like to also add too, with the trailways, Patty. Uh, I was out, uh, I was out camping not too long ago at well, Square Pond Park, and I had an individual said to me, said, "How do you get to the trailway?" And, like, you know, he had no problem leaving Square Pond Park, but he didn't, and he knew where to go to Butts Pond. But he said, how do you get to the trailway? And I had to show him and explain to him how to get to it, and they're from out of town. And, again, there's no sign you say, like, in Butts Pond saying, this is the way to the trailway. And even when you come off the trailway, which I've driven it, there's no sign you saying where you can turn off to get to Butts Pond uh, via to... If you had to go to the highway, cross, and go to uh, Square Pond Park. So if Rick knows where he's listening, uh, head of the Trailway Association, I think that's why you got to look at and These people from out of town, and they didn't know where to go because there's no signage. 
Yeah, I just... That's just another example. Sure. While you were talking, I heard from a tourism operator, and they've got uh, people who are uh, their customers, their clients complaining about the exact same thing, and this is uh, much closer to St. John's, but so obviously it's not to that part of the province or just even even just a scattered example. I would imagine it's rampant. Uh, Daryl, would you like to say anything else quick before I sneak on uh, one more call? Yeah, no, uh, like I said now, when it comes to the highways, the government should modernize with the digital signage uh, like I stated earlier and the trailway same thing because this gentleman said to me he said if I if I get lost uh, yeah, check back with me or whatever so he found his way after but I had to give him direction to show him what to do so I think between the trailways and the highways let's modernize and get with the times because I mean tourism is going to be our big thing and the cost of how everything is going now we don't want to add no more insult to injury to our economy. Tourism will be a big part of the future if the costs come back to earth or at least stabilize because it's getting away from most people. Pleasure travel will be for the uber wealthy before long if we continue on this trajectory. Uh, appreciate the time, Daryl. Thank you. Okay, again, thank you for your time, Patty, and all the best to you, you and too. your listening audience and staff at VOCM. Thank you. Same to you, Daryl. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep uh, going. Last word this morning goes to line number one. John, you're on the air. Good day, sir. I haven't got much time, so I won't. Uh, I won't say nothing about the Aboriginal. I just, I just wanted to talk to you about uh, uh, that lady that came on the other day about the flood that happened up in Portobello and all that, and she was upset because then we got no funding or something, uh, you know, about. Uh, what happened to them and everything, you know, but, you know, they got to realize, you know, we, we've been at this for six years, going on seven years now, and, and we, and some of us never got, even got a look in from the government, uh, what happened to us, so that's about all I could say today, because the time is uh, running short, so I just want to just mention that. Thank you, sir. Yeah, no problem, John. I guess the difference here is that you got yourself involved in the court battle regarding the flooding in Mud Lake, versus the folks in Burnt Islands, there's some strange way the government has taken the approach to who gets compensation who doesn't based on what community you live in not just not whether or not you were hit by the storm but it's a different kentil of fish in port of bass than it is at burnt islands the storm didn't realize what community they were hitting the storm hit whatever they hit so i really can't make heads or tails of that but your court challenge issue is dragging it on so since 2017 right well, that's when the yeah, flooding happened. Yeah. But, but, but like you said, uh, we're, we're just living across here. We're, we're not even uh, uh, about 15 minutes drive from, and, in, and we had the same flood, but we didn't get nothing on this side. The other side did. Right. It's, it's, I don't know who you know, I suppose, this way we go with that. Anyway, now, I guess time again, I'll call you about that Aboriginal thing. Now, right now, we're, you're strapped for time anyway. I am. You're always welcome, John. Okay, sir. Thank you. All the best. You're welcome. All right, there we go. Uh, yeah, I guess the difference there is absolutely because it's tied up in a class suit. We've actually spoken to the attorney representing the residents of Mud Lake who are challenging. Uh, well, the provincial government got backed out, right? So it's really just Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, and this is about what caused the flooding in Mud Lake. They say quite clearly it was the ice buildup at the generating station at Muskrat Falls. So the province got backed out, but I guess in essence, hydro is us. We are hydro. All right, good show today. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.